Hey, what's up, tribe? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the TFC Audio Project Down Under. So we've just arrived back from our workshop tour, which was unfortunately cut short due to the COVID restrictions in Brisbane. And we've had to take a break from our normal weekly episodes. So this week is another bonus episode, which is a conversation I had with Pat from Embody on his podcast. In this conversation, we chat through all things natural foot function, balance, and movement, and we also delve into my own story with my physiotherapy career, my own personal injuries, and how they've influenced my perspectives and approach to rehab and health. We'll be back with our regularly scheduled programming as of next Wednesday, but for now, I hope you enjoy this chat I had with Pat, and I'll be back with Mac next week. Welcome to the Embody Podcast, where you'll find powerful resources and perspectives for cultivating and experiencing complete human flourishing. This podcast features renowned practitioners in the fields of movement and physical culture, mindfulness, philosophy and spirituality, embodiment, and all things human flourishing. I'm your host, Patrick Keating. Thanks for listening. Alrighty, so on the Embody podcast today, we have James Duna from the Foot Collective Australia. James, it's been good to meet you recently and yeah. thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me on, mate. Looking and, forward to it. Yeah. Um, also, quick side note, um, the sound may be a little bit different in this episode, but bear with it. It'll be all good. Um, let's have a talk about just what you're doing currently, James, like as a really short overview we'll dig in later but just you know what are you doing currently yeah uh so short overview is i'm running the australian division of the foot collective so the tfc is a brand or a company started by nick st louis in canada Um, he's a physio over there and a few years ago i connected with him and resonated with what he was doing and and started the foot collective australia and so at the moment then we are basically providing education through like Instagram and podcasts and then uh, workshops as well. We're finally able to get back into the in-person workshops um, since COVID sort of stopped everything last year and also working on a new project called hacking the system, um, which we can probably explore a bit more later. Um, But yeah, that's, that's the general gist TFC Australia and, and hacking the system. Cool. Yeah. And we're, um, for those who are listening, we're both, we're in person this time. Uh, first podcast in person, I usually go over Zoom, but we're both in Brisbane, we're at James's place, Norcom Flower, which is cool. Um, so yeah, also, um, let's have a dig into your general history. We may go in terms of training history first, and then we'll go more into kind of uh, work history and what's and how TFC has come about. But in terms of training history, what have you done in the past? What have you been involved in and how have your ideas about training or about how you move evolved from very start to now? Mm -hmm. So I guess all throughout my life, I've been very active and uh, I've tried my hands at lots of different sports. And and fortunately um, that was encouraged and facilitated by my parents. You know, anything that I wanted to have a crack at, then they would be encouraging of that. And so you know, I, 
I did pretty much every sport growing up except the classic Aussie ones like AFL and cricket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just never really interested me. Yeah. Uh, or rugby. So, um, but I played a lot of soccer and tennis and um, did like volleyball and even softball and, and this and that um, and swimming and martial arts and just had a crack at everything. And so I going, growing up, I was kind of always a bit... Um, not embarrassed, but like, Oh, I thought it was a bad thing that I wasn't particularly great at anything. Like I'd see people who were really awesome at soccer or really awesome at this. And I was like, Oh, I'm not that good at any of that. I'm not that good, but I was quite good at all of it. And now I'm actually quite thankful for that because I think it taught me, taught me that you can learn pretty much any skill if you just have a crack and you're okay with having a beginner's mind and everything. Mm. So that's sort of the general background. And then, um, I think that facilitated me wanting to go into physiotherapy because in, in grade 12, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but my mum was a, is a physio and I knew I was very interested in the human body and in movement. So I just said, well, I don't know, I might as well just have a crack at physio. And then throughout physios, it's interesting because you're starting to learn all of these things about the human body and how things can go wrong and how to fix them. Um, but all of which is generally seated in these lecture halls for like three hour biology mm-hmm. lectures and all these tutor, like tutoring sessions and everything. Um, so you're actually kind of messing up your body while learning how to unmess up the body. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously that dates back to school and everything like you mm-hmm. sit down all day at school. But um, I started getting into around, yeah, I think it was yeah about first year physio. I started listening to a heap of podcasts and started hearing different perspectives on movement, especially um, like sort of natural movement and um, paleo diet and like natural living type concepts. Mm And um, I think that was around that time that Edo Portal's videos started coming out and I got very inspired by that. And I thought, oh, this makes so much sense that people need to move in different ways. And uh, I can see how so many people are suffering with these aches and pains and niggles. And a lot of it is down to um, the fact that they're not practicing movement. They don't have a movement practice. So I started getting into the, the like sort of movement culture side of things. I never studied like directly with Edo, but I saw other people that were doing similar things like gold medal bodies, GMB. I started getting into their um, gymnastics and locomotives, programs and really enjoyed those and found them like, how many years ago is this james oh uh this is from now. from now so i'm five years out of uni and that was first year yeah so like eight years ago Damn. Right. yeah oh gee <laughs> yeah. yeah well yeah kind of <laughs> not really <laughs> um so yeah eight years ago seems like a long time That's now long time. <laughs> i should be further along i should be a lot better that's what everyone thinks yeah no no it's all uh, it's all the journey yeah for sure um so yeah started getting into that and um really really enjoyed just the concept of getting down to the ground and moving in these sort of more primal ways, I suppose. And also found that my hips were insanely stiff. And I was like, wow, what's going on? Why are my hips so stiff? And it's like, oh, something clicked. I was like, I'm just sitting way, like way too much. And so started doing a whole heap of work on squats and, you know, the Edo Portal squat challenge and just started spending a heap of time in a squat and working through these locomotives and 
slowly but surely my hips like everything just started getting more flexible i didn't really spend much time actually stretching i just started moving a lot more through these positions and my mobility got way 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 better and so obviously once your strength and mobility gets better then movement becomes even more enjoyable and then you're just self-sustaining mm. so i then explored uh, animal flow and i've just heard either heard about these different people through podcasts or from you know gmb kind of affiliated with animal flow for mm. and things like that so went through animal flow and um like some calisthenics i think it was is it convict conditioning? Have you heard of that? It's like, a, I have heard. Yeah. 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 So I did that for a while and, um, you know, all that sort of more, yeah, body weight, calisthenics, strength stuff, which was, which was good. And then started getting into some gym training, um, like more strength training, um, with a mate who is a PT. And that's sort of where an injury, um, my knee pain, I had chronic knee pain started. Mm. I don't know if you want to, Maybe I'll skip over that for now yeah, and we'll we can chat about it because that's an interesting story. Um, but yeah, started getting into strength training and then <clears throat> from there explored CrossFit for a bit. Um, oh, this is sort of when I was just starting. Oh, sorry. I started my physio um, career, I suppose. And um, that was in a very manual therapy focused physio clinic. And started reading a lot more um, Kelly Starrett and Katie Bowman and realized more and more that I just got a deeper perspective on movement and realized how important movement is um, or how improvement, how important movement was for sustaining the results I was getting with manual therapy. And then started getting into yeah the crossfit realm and uh then into more the sort of tfc yeah after getting into crossfit um which was related to a, a career change then i started getting into the tfc side of things and started balancing on things a lot mm. <laughs> pretty much mm. um and now i just do a combination of all the above mm. pretty much and um yeah some some like knees over toes style training, uh, getting into like the real movement and uh, range of strength stuff lately as well. Mm -hmm. What's, um, you know, we should give the context of the knee, the chronic knee injury. Um, you know, what, what made that come about in your, you know, in your, in your recollection or your opinion, like what, what contributed to that and how did you go about, you know, dealing with it and overcoming it? Yeah. So it's a, it's a good story because, it's a, an illustration of what not to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I pretty much started getting into the strength training, like the gym training side of things. Um, I think it was in my, yeah, it was in my first year as a physio. Uh, started going into that more, uh, like going hard into that basically. Mm -hmm. And I, I've always had sort of big, strong legs, sort of naturally, I suppose, mm -hmm. strong legs. And so... <clears throat> like first few weeks of the gym, I was like, Oh sweet. I can back squat 80 kilos. I can do that for reps. I'll just keep, you know, I'll just do that. And I'll follow it up with a heap of box jumps and I'll follow that up with, you know, a heap of just plyometric stuff. And it's like, this is great. Feeling good. And sort of backstory, I guess, years before I, uh, in soccer, I'd, um, sprained my right ankle three times in one year. And that kind of ended my soccer career. Mm. Um, mostly out of frustration and 
anyway, the, that right ankle's dorsiflexion never fully came back the mm. same as the left. And I'd always have like an impingement kind of feeling in it, mm. which was never an issue for the more lighter, like the lighter stuff with locomotives and, um, and obviously like the upper, the calisthenic stuff. But as soon as I started loading that a lot with um, heavy squats and plyometrics, then the right, my right knee started to get a niggle. <clears throat> and then at the time, even though I was a physio, I was like, ah, it's just a niggle. I'll sort of just work through it or maybe take a few more rest days or whatever. And I even, um, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking about. I even started putting like tiger bomb on the, on the area and just get, get through the workout and it'll go away kind of thing. And also my mindset at the time was kind of of the, because of the manual therapy clinic I was in, I was like, oh, I'll just figure it out with these treatments. They'll, they'll fix it if it get, becomes a problem. Uh-huh. And so I just kept training and um, started getting worse and worse. And then I ended up leaving my physio job for um, a, a sort of role. I was subcontracting with David Johnson, who's a neurosurgeon who runs um, functional movement training center and CrossFit neuro. Uh And so he was obviously really into CrossFit and still is. Uh And I was like, cool. I like the idea of CrossFit training. Uh, I want to sort of connect with this guy and and get in with him. So I started doing, I did one of his um, functional movement courses and then started getting into CrossFit and that sort of just added, uh, you know, wood to the fire and obviously high intensity, um, very high intensity, a lot of, uh, plyometric stuff and so on. And so I kind of just kept ignoring it and it got worse and worse and worse and worse until I really had to start paying attention to it. And I'd be like, Oh, actually I can't do that movement anymore because my knee hurts. And, and it started in, to come into my daily life started interfering with even just getting up and down off the ground. Well, not interfering, but I'd notice it. I'd be like, Oh, that knee hurts every time I squat now. Mm. And so that's the way of the body. Like it'll give you a little, a little whisper. It'll say, Hey, you should probably do something like this. And then if you ignore it, then it'll just get more and more intense until it starts screaming at you basically. Mm. So where it takes an interesting turn now as well is uh, through the, the, neurosurgeon we were connected with a musculoskeletal doctor and um actually he's he's since passed um so rest in peace he was he was a really nice guy and um he basically was like oh you've got something going on with your knee come in we'll we'll give it a scan we'll check it out and um see what's going on and basically he uh, ultrasounded it and was like yep it's a quads a calcific quads tendinopathy so Uh basically calcium deposits in my quads tendon um which is a result of chronic inflammation basically and so stress like it gets little micro stress and then uh, yeah 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 it gets it's a lot of inflammation and then the body's protective response is to try and calcify the area basically so and the whole area was obviously very sensitized Mm. and from there so on the spot actually he goes well what we can do is um fenestrate it and inject it with cortisol Mm. and what's fenestrate so fenestrate is where they puncture it with a needle Mm. so they get in there and like basically 
it just felt like he was just working his way in through the tendon with a needle, which mm. was probably one of the most painful experiences of my life. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was really intense. And I kind of didn't expect it to be that intense. Um, but what that, the idea of that is it promotes blood flow because tendons don't get as, as like much blood flow. Like acupuncture kind of Pretty thing. much, yeah. <laughs> just really digging in. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and then, so then that promotes like a, an inf- like a, a fresh inflammatory res- uh, response, I suppose, to promote healing, but mm. also injected it with um, cortisol. And so what, um, what happened then was like, wow, that was really painful. Her knee hurt the worst it ever has for a couple of days, and then it stopped hurting. And I was like, huh, cool. Like, this is a good chance. I can do some rehab and, and maybe I can get my knee back, like, Epic. This is great. And um, the interesting thing is without the symptoms, then you start, you start getting a bit more complacent. You're like, oh, cool. I can go down to the park and run around now or like, you know, throw a Frisbee or do something that I couldn't mm. do before. So I'd be doing that. And then my left knee starts hurting. Exact same pain, exact same spot. Uh, except in my left now. Really? Yeah. Hectic. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And so and I, and I think to myself, I'm like, yeah, I'd, yeah. Okay. Something else is going on here. And, mm-hmm. and based off my experience in the manual therapy job, the connections in the body are like it pain isn't always, in fact, most of the time it's not an actual result of like the calcific tendinopathy. Mm-hmm. It's a result of everything going in your body and a protective response of the brain. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's the pain science going on. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, psychosocial factors as well. So I was like, true, I can't just inject it and expect, you know, nothing else to happen. So um, then out of interest, I was like, I'm interested to see what's going on with the knee, um, with the left knee. So I went in to the same doctor and he ultrasounds and goes, yep, this one's got calcific tendinopathy as well. Mm-hmm. And then, so I'm like, well, that was just sitting dormant there for like the last few years, zero symptoms. Like right. up until then I could pistol squat and full depth pistol squat, everything on that knee, zero symptoms. Mm. As soon as I inject this right knee, then the left knee starts hurting. That's so weird. Eh? <laughs> yeah. And so, and so I'm like, right, that's, that's interesting. And he goes, well, we can inject this one too, if you want. And he did the last one for free. And so I was like, <laughs> I was like, all right, might as well. Yeah. I mean, sure, let's go for it. And then, so he did that. And then the knees hurt, the, the left knee hurt, you know, worse it ever has, and then settled down. And then I was like, all right, cool. Now is my chance <laughs> to like do some proper rehab. And he, yeah. he was all on that train. He was like, it's your job now to do the rehab properly. It's, mm. you know, it's like we do the injection, but it's not about the injection that just gives you a window. And I'm like, yeah, cool. I know this, I'm a physio, I can do it. So I tried, started to do my own rehab because I was like, cool, I know what to do. Mm. And um, well, I thought I knew what to do. And I think I knew like a good chunk, but um, what I couldn't do was look at my own movement patterns and see where I was going wrong to sort of stress certain areas in the wrong ways. I didn't know how I was breathing. I didn't know how my core was activating. And so um, try to do my own rehab. I also wasn't accountable to anyone except myself. Mm. So going through the motions and then eventually I was like, ah, oh, the knees are feeling pretty good. I could probably do this light CrossFit workout with skipping. Like I just won't do any deep knee flexion. I'll just, you know, keep it sort of keep, keep the knees straight and everything. Did one, one CrossFit workout and like they blew up. Mm. The knees just blew up mm. from zero pain to like heaps. Mm. Like I was struggling to walk for a few days and then around, it was actually around that time that I was 
looking into the TFC side of things and was like, oh, I might be, might be thinking about making a transition here. And I kind of wanted to get out of the CrossFit scene anyway, not because uh-huh. CrossFit is bad, but just because it kept flaring on my knees and I was kind of just frustrated by it. And so there's more to that story as well. But um, from there, I started getting into the TFC stuff. And also because I was because my knees were so shot, I started getting a lot into hand balancing, mm. which was great. A great sort of um, just avenue to go down while I couldn't use my knees. Mm. Um, and then from there, I, I met, I, yeah, as I was making the transition to TFC, then I met, just coincidentally met uh, Kelly Mann, who's an exercise physiologist. Um, and she was at the time she was walking up at Northgate, but she's in the Valley now. And she was like, oh, dude, tendons are my thing. Like, come in and see me. I was like, oh, cool. Because uh-huh. at the time, I didn't actually have anyone, even though I was, I was connected in the industry, I suppose, I didn't have anyone that I was like, I would really trust that person to do my rehab. Uh-huh. So that made all the difference. Like, it was still a long slog, but she had a look at how I, was, how I was moving, changed the way I was breathing, changed the way I was activating my core. And then um, also... Uh, just get programmed it for me and just took all the, took all the guesswork out of it and just said, do this, this and this. And I went and saw her every week. And then that made all the difference. I started experiencing change, actual change in my knee pain and obviously started feeling a lot stronger. I was doing a lot of tempo work, um, a lot of quad dominant knees over toes, tempo work kind of stuff. And yeah, it was still a, it was an up and down process. It wasn't linear. Like no rehab is really linear. You still sort of go up and down and squiggly for a bit. But um, through that, I learned a lot about, I learned a heap about my body. And um, I think I became a better physio as well. And now I can do pretty much anything with my knees that I want. Mm-hmm. But I will notice that if I don't keep up the, some, some good training of the knees, then they'll start to hurt and I'll, I'll be like, okay, true. I haven't been doing my, mm-hmm. I guess it's prehab now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much the story with the knees. What do you think, like, what's your uh, hypothesis on why the knees will hurt again? Um, if you don't like <coughs> train them. Yeah. Is the initial cause still there is what I'm saying. Uh, I would say the calcification is still there. Mm. Um, so tendinopathies, they, they found that once it's, once it's a chronic degenerative tendinopathy, then those structural changes tend to stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, they, they, t- the whole concept with tendinopathies is treat the donut, um, not the hole. Mm-hmm. So it's treat everything around surrounding the tendon mm-hmm. and the, the tendon, can obviously get desensitized. A lot of it's down to sensitization and, and how your brain, like, you know, if you've had a chronic injury or even a really bad acute injury, your brain's more protective of that area mm. anyway. So any, any lapse in strength or any lapse of conditioning will make, will sort of is more likely to bring on that protective response of pain. Mm. So it's partly structural, partly there's still probably some de- degeneration in there and partly a sensitization thing, mm. I think. Okay. Is the hypothesis. Yeah. yeah, true. And when you were getting into the knees over toes stuff, what kind of things would that look like? Uh, it was a whole heap of like weighted decline, um, weighted decline squats with uh-huh. slow tempo up and down. Um, decline as in heels elevated? Or? Yeah, heels elevated. Yeah. Yep. And up until then, like I'd been doing... S- 
definitely far less of that stuff than I should have been because the, the narrative with the CrossFit is, um, very hip dominant squats, um, which is related to Olympic. Well, I mean, there's, yeah, there's different things, but, um, sort of it's very like power, power lifting style, like yeah. wide knees and like Uber glued activation. Yeah. Like yeah. And Uber, Uber glued activation. Yeah. No know. knees over toes. Yeah and, yeah. and obviously Olympic lifting, you'll see lifters do a lot of knees over toes stuff because they, they still do have to for their sport. Mm. But, um, in general, the CrossFit was a bit much more hip dominant and, um, so I definitely wasn't doing enough volume of decline squats, um, heels elevated stuff. And also that helps because it was taking the ankle range of motion out of the picture for a while and just allowing my body to work through these squats. Um, we were also doing like Spanish squats and we did get into back squats and, and just weighted front squats as well over time. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a progression from like very light sort of tempo stuff into more power based, um, higher load stuff mm. over time and it's i think it's it's progression obviously consistency and progression is the biggest things mm. for rehab and what's your ankle like these days um it's i mean it's it's not bad it still gets a little impingementy mm. um and what's interesting is i mean the connections in the body are fascinating like what i found with this original job um i had a shoulder injury um, with BJ, uh, it was a BJJ shoulder injury and that stuck around for like six months. Cause I didn't, I guess I didn't rehab it properly. Um, uh, but releasing a, a joint in my thoracic spine with the, with the physios that I was working with completely freed up that shoulder. And then because of what I knew about the method, I was like, this thoracic joint is probably also linked to my knees. And so I, and my ankle. And so I went back to them sort of this was yeah in the transition between the um neurosurgeon role and the tfc stuff i went back to them and was like just interested to release this thoracic spine and see what happens with my knees and mm. it did clear up the pain completely in the knees and mm. the impingement in the ankle from treating the thoracic spine mm-hmm. and then that would come back as soon as, it would all come back as soon as i did something that was above my capacity mm. so um i did start working more on my thoracic mobility as well as increasing the capacity which allowed me not to flare it up so Mm. much um i'm trying to remember how i got on that train but um what was the original question um (laughs) i can't remember but i do have another one which is (laughs) do you think that like so you know i know you may be agnostic towards this and at the end of the day it might not matter but in terms of mechanisms do you think that the T-spine made the knees better on a, on a maybe like a structural, more physical and inverted commas level? Or do you reckon that it was maybe on the more psychological like level? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, my understanding is it's neurophysiological Mm. mostly Mm. not, not really a structural change. So the idea with this method is that, um, you know, there's all of these quote unquote dysfunctions in a body um, that are a result of, you know, how you move, how you hold yourself, how much movement you get in your daily life, how much variety and you build up certain stiffnesses and and weaknesses in different areas. And um, 
that is basically a collection of noxious input into the brain and the brain processes all of that and then has an output of protective mechanisms, which are things like tightness, um, the feeling like the symptoms of stiffness and the symptoms of pain. And so those symptoms can come in different areas, but there might be a primary factor, primary contributing factor. Mm-hmm. And so the way I, what I realized was my core was not through, through working with Kelly. I realized that my core was nowhere near what it needed to be. Whereas I thought it was good. And um, I was actually hyperextending my thoracic spine pretty much all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I was straining that joint and then that was getting stiff and then seemed to be contributing to all these other factors. Mm-hmm. And so releasing that joint gave me some temporary relief from those other dysfunctions that were flowing from it. Mm. And, or, and, or it could be psychological. Definitely. There's always psychosocial mm. factors going on. Mm. And it could be that I, because this treatment worked so well for my shoulder, I had this belief that it would work for my knees as well. And sure enough, it did. Um, but yeah, that's sort of where I was getting onto is like manual therapy or any symptomatic um, treatment really just does only provide you a window of time to improve your capacity. And if you, the problem with it is if you relieve this, relieve the symptoms enough that you no longer care about improving your capacity and then you just end up in that cycle mm. yeah yeah because it's about discipline in that way yeah yeah and guidance <laughs> yeah um yeah yeah discipline and guidance i think and in terms of the thoracic spine thing um i've heard this saying that says proximal stability for distal mobility yeah Have you heard of that yeah yeah so a what's the idea behind that and b do you think that the neurophysiological cascade could be like would maybe center around spinal um like things before distal things or is it uh i think so i think based on what i've experienced and what i've read and and everything then that makes the most sense to me in terms of because the the brain is all about safety right and so if it feels stable and safe quote-unquote safe proximally in in the core and through the pelvis and the and the hips then it's much more likely to allow movement at the distal joints because everything upstream is good basically. Mm. Um, and so I think there's also, it's, you know, obviously there's also something to be said for um, the way the foot interacts with the ground and the ground reaction forces and how that then translates through the rest of the body as well. But it's, I like the concept of, you know, in to out, so proximal to distal and then ground up. Mm. Um, but I, I do really think there's a lot to that because obviously the spine is so important and encases the nervous system and is like, yeah, it's your core. Um, and nothing else can be optimally efficient without that being sorted. Mm. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, insanely strong, like a, like a gymnast level strength, but yeah, at least have to have a good awareness and control over that area um, in order for, because the, like a lot of tightness and stiffness and everything, like I said, is more neurophysiological protective mechanisms mm. than it is structural, um, you know, literal shortness of muscles mm. or anything like that. Mm. Yeah. Um, one last, well, I want to talk about core and how you think of that but also because that's a bit of a, I guess a bit of a semi-trendy topic within the movement culture versus traditional fitness kind of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But also um, I've also heard about 
from some of the, uh, what are they called? FRC dudes that in terms of the proximal to distal thing, the mobility or the restrictions that you experience in your joint capsule, say at your hips or shoulder will like the afferent, the, like the, uh, the body to brain, like the out to in kind of signals are higher, are more highly prioritized than like the signals from the, the more superficial or outside muscular layers kind of thing. And so therefore, if you work on the mobility of your joint capsule and your specifically like your rotations is what they think is yeah. like, especially internal in the shoulder, for example, mainly limits your capacity to flex and extend um, because of that neurophysiological like cycle mm. because the joint capsule is restricted. It's going to make my lats tight or my like pecs shorten um, in that way without them actually being like structurally hardware kind of shorter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't delved very deep into the FRC stuff, but mm. a lot of people in the TFC community are into it. And mm. so I can really only speak based off what I know and also just what I think about that whole concept, mm. but it does make sense that if you're, I guess to put it into context is that no modern human really moves naturally anymore. Mm. So our, our joints and our DNA on, on that deep level expects a very high quantity quality and variety of movement every day. Mm. And we are very largely sedentary um, as a culture, uh, basically. So no one is moving their body as much as they should mm. really, um, in, including you and me, just like, because we don't have to move for our food mm. and we don't have to move for our survival. It's all just done for us. Mm. And so over time through sitting in chairs and not climbing things and not throwing things and, or very infrequently, um, then our, our joint capsules will develop stiffness because they're just not being moved. So there's, you know, the said principle, if you're not exposing your body to a demand, then it's going to adapt to that lack of demand mm. basically. Mm. Um, or if you do it, impose a demand, then it'll adapt to that. Mm. So what I, what I understand from FRC and what I've heard from, um, uh, Ospina, uh, Andrew and Andre Ospina, he, um, talks about having human, like first restoring human movement. So most people's shoulders are just so, to use your example, are just so tight and locked up, especially through rotation um, because they just don't move it in those rotate um, in that rotational capacity. Mm. Then the brain then is getting all that yeah, afferent in input going, Oh, it's stiff. It's, I don't feel comfortable in these ranges of motion. And so it's going to restrict that. Mm. Whereas then it, you just gradually expose it to, um, to the range of motion. And they also have a concept of irradiation where you're basically providing muscular load and muscular tension through those ranges of motion. Then one, it, it would change some structural things. It always it has to change something structurally um, over time. But two, it has that neurophysiological effect where the brain feels safer in that range of motion and then therefore allows more movement throughout the whole shoulder. Like mm. it's just like, cool, the shoulder is strong and stable and I'm allowing the mobility now. Mm. And let's, let's, uh, oh, one other thing that we were going to talk about is the core and then we'll get into some <laughs> TFC related kind of things. Um, when you talk about core, what do you mean? And like, you know, for people listening who might not, who might think of 
who might not know much about the core, like how would you explain to them what it is, what it looks like to train it or have a strong core? Okay. Well, yeah, I like to think of the core in the terms of, in the sense of like the canister analogy where it's the combination of, um, frontal abdominals, um, like the back, the multifidus rectus spinae and, um, diaphragm and pelvic floor basically. So it's the four walls like that. And obviously the obliques will come into it. Um, but it's that wall, um, of muscle around that and having control, I guess, coordinated coordination between all those muscles that can put your spine in optimal alignment or can control the movement of your spine outside of, I mean, I'm going to use optimal in air quotes here. Mm. Um, but I guess like neutral spine Mm. where there's least pressures throughout the spine, obviously you need to be able to move outside of neutral Mm. and you, you know, you do in your daily life anyway, but, um, the core is basically how you control that trunk and that spinal um, movements. It's, it's allowing you to go out of neutral and also bringing it back into neutral when you want to be. Mm. I think that's the biggest thing that like um, when I was doing the CrossFit kind of stuff, it was like out of neutral is bad. Neutral is good. Mm. Whereas it's, I feel like it's a lot more about how controlled is it? And obviously how much have you actually exposed your body to outside of neutral? Mm. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be my definition of the core. And I, I think people, a lot of, a lot of people that focus just so much on abs, whereas I think it's a lot more about breathing and intra-abdominal pressure than it is about, um, strength, which just comes back down to coordination really. Mm-hmm. More kind of like a little bit more on the software side than mm. the, cause that's an interesting kind of like, um, distinction that I've heard Nick make um, from TFC in Ottawa. And I thought that was really um, helpful. And, you know, we might get into that might kind of like color this next bit of the conversation, which is a more about the foot stuff. So like, why should people care about the foot? Why should they care about the health and the function of their feet? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so the feet obviously are our foundation. Like we're bipedal, bipedal animals. So we spend the majority of us spend um, our movement on our feet, on our two feet, um, unless it's swimming um, or climbing, I guess, but the feet are pretty much interacted, like integrated with everything that we do. And, you know, getting from A to B is generally done by walking unless you're driving, <laughs> but um, you know, you want to be able to walk and, and, Uh, use your feet for whatever that you want to be able to use them for and feet these days are essentially under attack by the modern lifestyle Um, in one sense it's just general sedentarism um, where they're just not being used like as you know if you're driving or sitting all the time then you're just not using your feet and then two is sort of more local sedentarism where feet get shoved into non-foot shaped shoes so tight rigid narrow pointed heeled shoes that aren't foot shaped and have no relevance to the function of the foot um they're all mostly about fashion and the feet have they they're just not because they're in that environment most of the time they're just not being used the way they naturally would and results in stiffness weakness um and often pain as well but 
for some reason the traditional narrative is just that feet oh yeah feet are like feet are fragile um you know you got to support them you got to take care of them you got to oh if they're feeling sore then you just got to put more support in um we got to make sure you've got you know five inches of foam between you and the ground and it just doesn't make any sense in terms of natural foot function and uh so given that the feet are sort of under constant attack from those outside forces then it's very important to bring awareness to the fact that you can you don't have to um go down that path you can you can choose to restore natural foot function um through the right behaviors basically um so you know i guess why should people care about their feet you want to you want to have good foot function long term you'll really notice if you have say plantar fasciitis or um some kind of foot pain because every time you get up and walk, you'll be like, Oh, that's right. My foot, like it's involved in everything. It's like back pain kind of Uh like you'll, if you're doing something, um, if you've got back pain, you'll notice it in pretty much everything you do. And similar with similarly with feet. And a lot of people are just stuck in this cycle of foot pain and, and, um, symptomatic treatments that aren't actually resolving the root cause. Uh And what is it about modern footwear that you're talking about? what actually happens in the foot as a result to walking in or being in modern footwear all the time and and what happens like what would then happen to your foot if you started to transition into more minimalist shoes barefoot shoes and walking and living barefoot yeah well yeah so the the feet the two primary functions of the feet are as sensors and like movement basically so um from the sensation point of view I mean, you hear different, you hear different stats. Like some people say 7,000 nerve endings in each foot. Some people say 200,000. Um, I'm, I'm going with the 200,000 number, but it's basically a whole, it's very sensitive area. It's similar to the hands and the tongue and face in, in terms of that, um, like the sensory homunculus, mm. like feet are very overrepresented in the brain um, because they're such important sensors because they're taking information from the ground and passing it to your brain so that your brain can have a, um, like an intelligent or an effective output as a result of that information. So sensation and then movement. So there's 26 bones, 33 joints and four layers of muscle in each foot. So it's a whole heap of hardware. And the only reason for a joint to exist in the body is for movement. If you didn't need movement, then there wouldn't be a joint. Mm. And so there's a whole heap of joints in each foot and between like the tarsals and metatarsals and obviously phalanges, so all the way through and they need movement just as much as like your elbow needs movement, but it's just smaller scale. Mm. And the way the foot gets that movement is through interacting with the ground and, um, and with uneven terrain as well. So rocks, logs, sticks, you know, things that, you know, hills, like all of these things change the way your foot adapts to the ground and therefore the accessory movements of those joints. And, what modern footwear does is disrupt both of those functions. So we'll start with um, basically, yeah, we'll start with width. So the foot, the width of the toe splay is very important for balance um, and also arch control. And if you have a pointy shoe, like most obviously dress shoes and high heels are really good examples, but even pretty much all athletic shoes these days have some kind of point if you, if you look at it and a point will then obviously bring the toe splay in 
and also just constrict the display of the whole foot, like including mm. midfoot and, and like the metatarsal area. Mm. And then, um, so that's a movement thing. And then most shoes are also rigid. And it's interesting that a lot of these characteristics are made by design, like shoe manufacturers actually want to put rigidity in and mm. want to point. And some of that's to do with fashion. Um, and some of it's just to do with like, Oh, we've got to add more technology to, mm. to sh- sell our shoes basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and Ido has that quote where it's like high tech shoes, low tech feet, um, and vice versa, mm. low tech shoes, high tech feet. Mm. But, um, so rigid and narrow that's affecting the movement. So you're not getting anywhere near as much movement in your foot. And then, um, a heel obviously again is related to how much movement you're getting in terms of ankle dorsiflexion, which is a very important, um, joint range of motion. And so people are spending their time in plantar flexion without realizing that they're constantly in plantar flexion and never moving through dorsiflexion or never moving through much dorsiflexion. And then they wonder why they can't squat down to the ground, heels down. And they're like, oh, my ankle's really stiff. It's just spending all day in a heel. Um, and that includes athletic shoes with, with, a, with a drop. Mm. Um, and then the other huge thing is just the, the cushioning component or having that distance um between your foot and the ground disrupts the sensory information that's going through your foot so you can't actually have the appropriate motor or movement outputs because you're not getting the right input so better quality inputs will equal better quality outputs in general Mm. and so low quality input like all this foam is going to change your ability to have a good output Mm. um so that's that's the modern footwear that's the issues with modern footwear that um, are getting talked about a lot more lately, which is great. Um, but it sort of seems very crazy. I mean, just said that when it comes down to it, it just seems crazy that you're like, how does, how do people not know that you should wear shoes that are foot shaped mm. and why are foot, why are the most foot shaped shoes like Vibrams that just look like a glove for your foot? Why do they look so strange? Mm. And why are people so freaked out by them? It's mm. like, it just looks like a foot. It's like, mm. It's like if you if you wore a glove, you're going to be going for as minimal amount of padding as possible to protect your hands mm. so that you can use your fingers properly. Mm. It's the same with the foot. Just go with as minimal amount of protection as you need, um, which will change maybe depending on the terrain, but minimal, pro- like just protect the foot. Mm. It's, an impo- it's an important structure. You've got to protect it, but don't disrupt the function of it. Mm. It's like it reminds me of going skiing and when you might borrow someone else's gloves or, you know, there's like, you have to borrow someone else's gloves cause like your ones got wet and they're really different. Maybe you have like the mitt ones or something like that where your fingers are all closed yeah. and then you're trying to do shit and you're like, fuck these gloves, these gloves are so annoying. Or then you get these really big fat ones that are like really meant for really cold conditions. And then you feel useless and you're always wanting to have, it's always a balance, you know, when you're in the freezing snow, a bit more protection is necessary, but it really highlights the, difficulty to be able to manipulate manipulate anything um with the gloves yeah yeah exactly and i love that analogy because it's like imagine if people spent all day in these like oven mittens like really tight tightly fit oven mitts and then they get home take off the oven mitts like oh my hand's so stiff and and like oh it's a bit sore i need to like you know and then they go to someone and that person's like, oh, you should probably get some support in that oven mitt. It's mm. like, maybe you just shouldn't wear that oven mm. mitt and wear like a thin glove instead if you have to wear gloves. Mm. <laughs> it's like, it's just a lot more obvious when, you talk, when we talk about it with hands. Mm. Um, and I, I 
sort of have this catch line called feet like hands. Like they, they are just the hands of our lower body and, mm. and they deserve just as much love and attention as our hands do. Mm. And they should be quite dexterous and mobile and you know, maybe not quite as dexterous as the hands, mm. but should have a good amount of dexterity and control through your feet as well. Mm. And in terms of outputs, you talk about like the inputs being really restricted when you wear the foam. What kind of things would it look like to have restricted outputs? So, yeah. So, um, I mean, a good example might be if you're, if you're not getting the full input from the ground because of all this foam, uh, from your foot, then like a, a common output is changing the hip position. Like, um, hips will change the foot arch position basically. Mm. So people talk about overpronation and flat feet and this and that, a lot of that comes back down to hip control and hip stability. Mm. And so if you're, um, say for example, you're hiking and you've got this big thick cushion between you and the ground and which also acts as a lever for your ankle to roll out. Um, you're rolling out and because you don't get that signal quick enough, then rather than your hip snapping back into abduction, then which saves your ankle, then your ankle just goes and you roll it. Mm. And so that's an, that's an example of an output that could have been far quicker. Like I've been walk, I've been, there's countless times where I've been going barefoot or in minimalist shoes. And as soon as I feel you can just feel a lot more. So as mm. soon as you feel your ankle turning out, then your hip just snaps in. Mm. And obviously there's something, your ankle will react as well. Mm. But a lot of it's the powerful hip abduction, which brings the ankle back into alignment. Mm. And it just, it just happens like that in an instant because you're getting good inputs and your brain, especially I suppose with all the balance training I do, my brain is very efficient at going, okay, that's how I maintain stability. That's how I maintain alignment. Mm. Um, yeah, let's talk about that relationship between the foot arch and the hip stability. So a lot of people, you know, when looking at a flat arch, will try and treat the arch with a orthotic or something like that. And they'll still have, you know, if they'll just be standing like really flat footed with like knee in kind of like knee valgus and, yeah. and you could usually pretty on cue. Sometimes you won't though sometimes you find people with really flat feet that have like a strong hip, but quite commonly um, with the people that I work with, I find that people that have poor looking feet have weak hips as well. Like, and you know, why do we usually go for that orthotics solution? And is that the best way in which to maybe regain the function of people's arches and foot in general? Yeah. So it's an interesting question. And, um, I think traditionally the foot, I guess podiatry in general has really isolated the foot. And obviously the medical world is great at this is, is isolating a certain body part and getting really um, granular on that certain body part and going, okay, this joint does this and this, you know, function and, you know, this windless mechanism and so on and so forth. Um, but it can become so isolate isolationist that you've, don't really look at how the rest of the body is affecting that area. And mm. I mean, it's just kind of goes without saying that everything in the body is connected. Mm. Um, and the other thing is that there's been that traditional narrative around feet are inherently 
just uh, like inherently fragile or they just get dysfunctional or it's just bad luck if you end up with you know flat feet or poor functioning feet and and certainly some people have like a very small percentage of people have some kind of genetic um obviously there's genetic predispositions but then there's like a genetic um like a fully genetic flat foot where mm. it's just like, yeah, like you say, you could have strong hips. It's not going to change the flat foot. Mm. Fortunately, foot arch height isn't the biggest determining factor of foot health or function. Um, <clears throat> but it is, a, you know, it's obviously uh, does help uh, in some way. Um, but once you look at the body in terms of that interconnectedness and interdependence, then um you can go, all right, well, yes, the, there's certain factors in the foot, like ligament laxity or um, first ray alignment and things like that, that will affect the function of the arch. And then, but also even probably even more so than the control at the hip. Like you can do a simple test. If you just stand up, look down at your feet and internally and externally rotate your hips. So get your knees to face each other and then get your knees to face apart. You'll see your foot arch collapsing and lifting. And so it's, it's very easy to see that the hip will affect the foot. And, um, once you take that integrated approach, then you start to realize, well, the body is the support system of the foot and your like proximal stability is part of the support system of the foot and obviously environmental factors like footwear around the foot will make a big difference as well and so there's actually a new like andy bryant who's a podiatrist in melbourne who's been part of tfc since pretty much since i have been mm-hmm. um he's him and nick are working on starting a is he melbourne soft tissue set therapy no that's that's mick he's another foot nerd mm-hmm. um so andy is just on instagram he's just andy bryant underscore podiatrist i think Mm -hmm. but really great resource of information and he since sort of understanding the tfc approach he's i think he's prescribed like maybe two or three pairs of orthotics because Mm -hmm. they are relevant in certain situations and especially as like i guess a stopgap measure to it's like a brace basically Mm -hmm. or or a crutch it Mm -hmm. helps you get you through your day while some tissues are desensitizing and you you can alter alter some loading patterns to certain tissues, Mm. which can be helpful, but it's always with the mindset of getting out of them as quickly as is feasible Mm. as quickly as your body can tolerate Mm. and having just having an exit plan. Mm. So Andy's starting a, a, what's called um, a society of natural podiatry, Mm -hmm. which is uh, basically their full focus or goal is to restore the natural function of the foot rather than sort of, I guess, covering up the symptoms with orthotics because the more support you give your body, the weaker it gets and the more it needs that support. So people are in this cycle of getting prescribed an orthotic, then their foot is even less able to tolerate the demands of their day without the orthotic. And then, you know, then they have to end up wearing their orthotic all the time and they can't, you know, they can't walk barefoot on the beach they, you know, they get told never to ever go barefoot because it's probably going to hurt. Mm. And then they get this fear or, or this like stigma around barefoot. And what they really need is just a progressive plan to uh, strengthen and mobilize the feet and restore that natural function. And, and when you're, so you guys do lots of stuff with beam, um, you do a lot of stuff with hacky sacks and whatnot. Um, where would people give us the kind of trajectory in terms of like 
foot nutrition that someone with really weak feet who's been in orthotics for 20 years might start at? And then, you know, where does it kind of progress to in terms of like inputs for foot nutrition? Yeah, cool. So we talk a lot about the simplest thing you can do for feet is just to switch to natural footwear or to spend as much time barefoot as possible. And the caveat there is if you've been in supportive shoes and orthotics for 20 years, then it's like, that's like you've been sitting on the couch for 20 years and you're going to have to take a, a sort of gradual approach to exposing yourself to that new load. So if you switch to barefoot and natural footwear, it's a much higher demand on your feet. So if they're not ready for it, then it's like going from the couch to lifting a hundred kilos, you know, the first day you're going to end up pretty sore and you might injure yourself. So there is that caveat, but basically the biggest and most important thing is to change the environment of your foot, which will make the biggest difference to health and to the foot health. Mm. And a lot of people will get really great results just from doing that. Um, but it obviously can help to either quicken the transition or um, sort of uh, decrease the amount of discomfort you're getting by adding in some extra challenges to the foot. So I generally start with, oh, the one thing is toe spreading. So getting the toe splay back. So we sell these little silicone toe spreaders, which we call wild toes. So that can help resplay the foot after being, you know, in narrow shoes for a long time. Um, we sell these cork mobility balls. Um, but yeah, just any kind of mobility ball where you can actually roll the tissues out on the bottom of your foot. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to think of that just as a supplement for the deep pressures that we would experience in nature. So the feet are really like the only part of my body that I roll out now because, um, that's actually, they would be experiencing that in nature pretty much, you know, every day is some kind of deep pressure. And if you go for like a, a barefoot hike or a Creek, um, you know, Creek rock hop or something like that, which I do, I try to do a fair bit, then you really notice the importance for, of being able to tolerate deep pressure mm. through your feet. Cause you get poked in the arch and you're yeah, like, you're like oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you don't want to be, your feet don't want to be so, um, sensitive that you step on something and you have to change your whole movement pattern because that arch is too sensitive. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, your arch should just be able to tolerate your full body weight on Mm -hmm. it like that. It's just what feet should be like. So I'd start there spreading and and rolling out the feet and then working on some balance, like just flat ground balance stuff, because that's how you integrate the hip stability with the arch control. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've got a bunch of, um, all of this stuff isn't actually videos on my website, which we, I'm sure we can link. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be starting to work on, yeah, just the stability of that foot ankle complex and how that talks, how that integrates with the hip. And in, the important thing there is not just standing on one leg and, and just, you know, standing on one leg. It's mm-hmm. that's boring. Mm-hmm. You want to be challenging the body to move in different directions while stabilizing on one leg. So a great place to start is like a, a clockwork, a clock face drill, which is also like a star excursion uh, concept, um, which is like a well-researched uh, outcome measure. Um, but yeah, clock face drill. And then I'd be starting to get into um, like things like beam work or more like plyometric um, or like full range strength training um, because 
you know, it's not only foot specific stuff, but working on squats and hinges and, you know, functional movements and sort of ground movements, like even just sitting here on the ground, we're changing positions a lot. My foot's going into, my ankle's going to dorsiflexion and plantar flexion on the other side and, you know, just exposing it into those more, um, like non-exercise movement mm. as well is going to be, is going to be a big part of it. And in terms of the, the foot and hip integration stuff with balance, I think like balance in terms of, you know, cause you go through the, the traditional components of fitness, it's like strength and then like flexibility and speed and power and coordination and balance. I feel like has, it's kind of like a lot of people might look at that. I feel like and think, uh, it's kind of not the most important one. Like you would definitely want strength and power before that because it's very sport kind of orientated and the balance seems like really not a low hanging fruit. And it's just something that you can really pass up to the side. What kind of things do you get out of, um, balance work along with the, like speaking a bit more to the, the integration between the hip and foot as well. Yeah. So I kind of just look at it like, uh, efficiency really. So you can, you can say balance or you can say stability, but either way it provides the good thing about the beam is it, it teaches you when you're in sort of good alignment or efficient alignment, because if you're not, then you fall off basically. Mm. So the beam work is basically or beam work or beam play. It's, it's a play based way of exploring a lot of different positions with your body, which those kinds of those are the exact kind of positions that you'd get into in a sporting match and um, of something, depending on what it is, obviously, but your brain is exposed to all of these positions and it learns, did I maintain stability or not? And obviously it's more challenging than just flat ground, but so is wearing like a soccer boot or a football boot because it's narrow. Mm-hmm. And so um, having that stability just allows you to obviously, you know, maintaining stability will allow you to have a better output because you're not off balance. And uh, also that, I guess the aspect of alignment, like joint, joint centration and joint alignment will allow you to move more efficiently. So you're just expending less energy for, for what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if we're talking about plantar fasciitis and I've heard Nick um, say some things about this. And I, when I first heard uh, Nick talk about plantar fasciitis, I was kind of like, finally, or like, thank you. Someone's talking from this kind of, um, perspective, you know, what, how would you guys kind of look at plantar fasciitis, which is it's relatively common. Like it's not, mm. it's not uncommon. That's for sure. Oh, no, like I know common. people that have experienced it or different, different variations of it, just having uber tight feet that may not be like, you know, diagnosed or whatever. Um, you know, how do you guys approach that maybe differently to how it's traditionally approached or think about it as well? Think about it's like, uh, causes. Yeah. So it's sort of traditionally approached like, oh, it's inflammation in that area, like fasciitis, inflammation of the plantar fascia, which mm-hmm. is like the, the soft tissue on the bottom of your foot. Mm-hmm. And that's often treated like, okay, well, we've got to unload that tissue. And, you know, that can be done with external support, like orthotics and this and that. And um, otherwise, people, you know, some people, more people will talk about 
releasing the muscles and you know there's the whole ice you know ice bottle that you chuck in the freezer and then you release the muscles and things like that and some people can get really good results literally just from the the releasing the tension in their feet and they're finding more and more lately that like yes there might be some true plantar fasciitis like acute inflammation um but a lot of it's more like a fasciopathy um which is similar to a tendinopathy in that it's not necessarily an active inflammatory process but it's a sensitization of the area Mm -hmm. and you can almost treat it similarly to a tendinopathy where yes you're going to have to manage the load and that very you know short-term use of orthotics can be used to manage the load but you can also change load in other ways like a lot of people are just doing way too much um way too much volume of their chosen sport or chosen um, you know mostly running for example Mm. um and they're doing it in shoes that disrupt the function of their foot and so their foot is weaker and weaker and stiffer and stiffer while also getting more and more load on them. Well, like a good example would be like someone who starts a boot camp and starts running out of no, out of nowhere. So mm. a lot of it's to do with load management. And then the rest is just down to restoring again, restoring natural foot function, you know, restoring um, ankle mobility, restoring strength through the, you know, the foot ankle complex, restoring actual, like the balance stuff with the, like the foot hip connection stuff with balance is a really good isometric challenge for the plantar muscles and and the fascia. Um, And then starting to work through deeper ranges of motion of like big toe extension and, um, and all of that, then vast majority of cases can be resolved like proper properly resolved through um, just restoring natural foot function. Hmm. Yeah. Um, And about the big ray, the big ray. Yeah. <laughs> big ray. <laughs> the first ray. Um, you know, I've heard people talk about that and the fact that you should like try and press your big toe into the ground when you're doing things and this kind of stuff. And I've also experimented with peeling the toes completely off the ground when balancing and when doing different movements and experimenting, feeling what happens in the hip. What does like what does the big ray do in terms of, you know, when you may be pressing into it during a, a lower body movement or something like that. And why do people place emphasis on it? Yeah, well, it, it does provide, again, it's, it's a point of sensation. So it does provide that input to the brain, which then allows that better output. And then it also uh, helps provide stability in the, in the foot itself. So if you think of your, um, if you think of your foot, like a tripod and you've got three points, one's the, like the outside ball of your foot one's like the inside ball of your foot and your big toe and one's the heel if you kick one of those legs of the tripod out collapses it just falls down and so regardless of what's going on upstream really so um a good again with that same test that we did for the hip and arch control where you turn your knees in and out you can also try purposely pushing your big toe in and noticing how much more your foot collapses when you do the internal rotation of the hip. So this is where that becomes really important in terms of the width of your shoes. So if your shoes are pushing your big toes in, then you're immediately compromising your stability in the foot itself. And then if you go barefoot um, or have wide shoes and can actively push into the ground and have that sort of proper alignment, like a straight first ray, then you're just much better able to maintain stability in the foot and much better able to have good outputs for the rest of your body because it's getting that sensation. 
And how long does it take people to transfer from, you know, wearing shoes, wearing normal shoes to wearing more kind of barefoot shoes? I saw something on your Instagram that was saying up to 12 months before like long barefoot runs and things like that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to say really because everyone's going to be so different based on their history with shoes and orthotics and, and movement in general. So you can't really give a, a uh, you can't really give a, like a specific number, but in general, I would say it's quicker than people think. Um, but it's also good to go conservative, especially if you get into like barefoot running and things like that, your body does need time to build up to that. And it's an intelligent way to approach any training really is, is, um, treat the movement like a skill, really understand what components are involved in that skill. So running is a skill. It's not just an activity that you can just go and do. Um, well, originally it should have been, but we're so compromised. Our movement is so compromised these days that most people will benefit from uh, coaching and guidance around running form. Um, but also you can achieve a much more natural running form simply by getting your shoes off because it, you know, as soon as you get your shoes off, you're not going to be overstriding really. And you're not going to be heel striking mm. because that just sucks. It just hurts. And it's not, it doesn't feel good to do. Whereas running on your midfoot and, um, and not overstriding feels way better and feels more efficient. So it's, uh, yeah. So I would say, yeah, definitely a longer transition to higher load barefoot activities, but it, it is often a lot less time than people think and feet can adapt because they're built for this stuff. Like they can adapt surprisingly quickly if you are consistent with the inputs you give them. In terms of like, obviously there was, there's a lot of like soft tissue um, adaptation that needs to go on and like elasticity and tolerance to the speed of loads and stuff. Like if you go into say, um, yeah, if, if you aim to be able to barefoot sprint on concrete, like for example, it's much different loads than jogging in joggers. Yeah. Are there things that facilitate the adaptation of the, of the soft tissues that, that you've come across? Maybe things like dietary or lifestyle factors or, or things like that? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think, you, I mean, in any conversation about health or adaptation, you're going to have to talk about nutrition and sleep. So if you're simply not getting the nutrients that you need in your food, like uh, enough protein or, um, you know, obviously the most essential ones, protein, and then there's stuff like collagen that's really important for connective tissue. If you're just not getting those building blocks, then you're going to have a much harder time recovering and adapting. And similarly with sleep, um, sleep is just huge for recovery in, in every aspect and, um, and adaptation. So if you're getting four hours sleep a night and you're trying to make changes to your movement and everything, then it's, you're going to be one step forward, one step back pretty much, mm. or you're probably going to end up hurting, mm. um, for a number of different reasons. And so I think definitely that makes a big difference. Um, but if, as long as you've got sort of the your bases of your nutritional stuff covered and you're not eating heaps of inflammatory foods and you're sleeping, good quality, you know, decent quality, seven, seven or eight hours a night. The biggest thing with sleep, I think to know whether you're sleeping well is if you wake up easily with like, even if it's with an alarm, if you don't feel like you need to hit the snooze and you just wake up pretty fresh, that's how you know you've slept well. Mm. So people get into all this sleep tracking stuff, which can be valuable, but really are you waking up fresh 
and ready to go or not. And mm. that's how you know. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy because, you know, I've heard a lot of research and all of the tips and tricks and blah, blah, blah about sleep and whatnot. And it's crazy because I still, and I don't know whether, you know, because my, my man, I'm maybe like, maybe I'm a, a night owl as opposed to a morning kind of person or whatever but i still i find it really hard to wake up and get up and like Mm -hmm. my girlfriend for example opens her eyes and is like ready to just do stuff and i'm it takes me so long to actually get going and yeah it's funny that you say that because i if that's a measure of because i feel like my sleep quality is really good yeah right but i don't know it's weird hey like i I feel like i am just rooted when i wake (laughs) up dude so cooked um yeah i mean i'm fine like once i get going you know but yeah right is is it a are you a caffeine dude are you like a not really like um i try and not drink too much coffee um but yeah here and there some but definitely i'd reckon i'd probably drink one to two coffees a week to, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I'm not like not the sleep expert, but I, I do know I'll notice if I have like too many coffees and what, like I'll, my maximum is usually one. And sometimes I'll dabble with two, but I'll also notice if I have two, then the next morning I'm more gritty and I'm like more likely to sleep in. Mm. There is, there is another whole aspect of it, which is like, um, your yeah your circadian type like you mm. know night hour versus you know early morning and so on which which will make a difference um but otherwise um you know there might be something nutritionally or, or from a movement perspective that you're not um recovering enough from mm. but yeah it's interesting stuff to troubleshoot but it's it's yeah. feedback really from your body going that some something might need to change it's um, an ongoing thing because i do trouble. remember when i was one time I was road tripping by myself in my car and I'd just kind of go to bed maybe like 9.30 after dinner and sleep and obviously I'd had no curtains on my car and then I'd wake up almost like clockwork like 20, 25 minutes before sunrise, so at first light and feeling so good. Mm. I'd always think back to it like it was the, it was the best I was feeling ever that I've ever lived through. And it's so hard to pinpoint because there were so many things. Like I was surfing for like six hours a day, Mm. spending so much time in the sun, having consistent bed cycles, having morning light, being exposed to it being dark when it was and light when it was. And there were so many different things going into it that, and also psychologically feeling incredibly free and chilled. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely an ongoing, um, thing for me to uh think about yeah there's so that's the thing there's so many factors that will come into sweet sleep quality and mm. you can really only just do your best to troubleshoot and figure out if you but it's it's and it's good not to get like to obviously beat yourself up if you're like oh you know this is you know, it's like i'm not waking up as good as i could be it's it's um just yeah it's a trial and error thing really mm. i guess and it's I've found like if I eat too late, that'll affect, if I eat too close to bed, that'll affect it. Um, And obviously like having alcohol will affect it and Mm. and all of those classic things. But um, yeah, it it can be frustrating when you, when you can't figure out, like if you have tried a bunch of things and you can't figure it out, it's like, Oh, Mm. (laughs) what do you want, buddy? Tell me, tell me explicitly. Yeah. you know, we're sitting on the ground now. And as you said, we're moving between different positions. And I think you've referred to this as kind of ground culture. Yeah. Um, 
why would someone do this and what's it in comparison to in the way that people usually live? Yeah. So ground culture or ground living, um, I think has been really huge for me. And, and when you think about it, that is our natural state, uh, because chairs are a technology that we haven't had forever for the majority of our evolution. We've been up and down off the ground all the time or spending a good amount of time on the ground, sleeping on the ground, eating on the ground, you know, preparing, like making tools, like everything is just interacting with the ground. And it's interesting. It's also a parallel with shoes, chairs and shoes are are these technologies that separate us from the ground. And we no longer have that interaction with it either through the feet or we just sit on a chair that keeps our hips at 90 degrees and our whole body static. And it's, it's a way it's, it's just, it's interesting thing where we've become so technologically advanced that we've sort of outsourced all our movement to other, other things. So technology or other humans or other animals, because it's like an energy conservation thing, but in the process we're like destroying our, our bodies. So like chairs, if it's uh, sitting on the ground is very different to sitting in a chair one, because you just can't sit in a, on the ground, like you would in a chair, it's just impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, because your hips are going to be at different angles. Even if I tried to like be in that hip position, Mm -hmm. I'd be like holding myself up like this. And so, but mostly you adopt these ground sitting positions, which you can see if it's in the video. Mm -hmm. And so where your hips are in rotation or you're in a kneeling position like that, where ankles, like, like I said, in plantar flexion and dorsiflexion and you are like encouraged your body encourages you to change positions frequently because it just gets uncomfortable sitting in one of these ground positions for too long. Mm. And it's a stimulus to move. Whereas if you're just in a couch, then you don't get as much stimulus to move because it's comfy. Mm. And so, um, sitting on the ground is like, I think it's like the, uh, ultimate mobility hack. Mm. So quote unquote, because rather than spending, you know, spending 20 minutes a day mobilizing my um, ankles and knees and hips, then I just spend the vast majority of my time on the ground and I stay mobile and I can move fluidly through all these positions like mm. like a baby would mm. um, or even more fluidly than a baby maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it d- takes no extra work. It's mm. just... Um, that's just how I live. And we have these little tables that Nick's made these tables, which I'm thinking of getting made in Australia as well. Um, things like that to promote, to make you remember or having like mats set out. Like I do mm. like an area of your house where you do spend time on the ground. You can, I eat down here often and like, a, yeah, very rarely sit at a table to eat unless it's with like my family or something. Mm. And um, I do my work on my laptop or iPad down here and, and obviously do a lot of movement as well. So it's just like free, free mobility, quote unquote. And it also, obviously you know, it's one thing to do in your house, but also connecting to the ground in nature is also a big thing as well. Just literally having that physical connection to the earth mm. is a, is a is a big thing. How, in terms of dorsiflexion, I've kind of got my left ankle, maybe like you, is it your right? That's the right. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's, they're so, it feels like stuck up, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and to be honest, I don't do much like targeted kind of dorsiflexion work. And I do, and I don't currently spend too much time on the floor. Um, you know, 
what are some ways in which you well first what does lack of dorsiflexion actually do to your body like when you're maybe going through a normal standard workout but then when you're actually say for example running around and whatnot and also how can people start to increase their dorsiflexion yeah so why should they take it more seriously maybe yeah um so dorsiflexion if a lack of dorsiflexion will just affect every other movement pattern that you do especially with things like squatting and and everything like that your ability to get your knees over your toes will promote the alignment in the rest of the body so uh, a good example would be to like try and try and block your dorsiflexion somehow like try and squat with um with just your knee like without any like with just your knee shin staying vertical Mm. um and you'll feel your back has to move, your back has to flex more. Mm. Um, your, you know, your pelvis will tuck more and you'll just feel less balanced. Mm. And so the, you know, an- yeah, it might seem like, oh, it's just your ankle, but then that affects everything else upstream, especially when it's in sort of more complex integrated movements. And again, it's not necessarily that s- flexed spine or tucked pelvis or anything is bad, but you want to ha- it's all about options uh, and you want to be able to flex your spine when you want to, but also keep it neutral through a full range of motion squat when you want to as well. And so it's such a key area that will affect everything else. And so you, you do need to take it seriously. Otherwise you're just restricting your options of, of how efficiently you can move mm-hmm. in, in different contexts. And in terms of gaining it back, I think, I mean, again, the two biggest things are environmental. So removing shoes that have a heel because that's going to be just promoting plantar flexion the whole time. Mm. Um, having area, having time where you spend, well, you're just spending a lot of time on the ground because that is like a more, yeah, it's an environmental thing where your foot is in an environment where a foot and ankle are in an environment where they are being forced to move or forced or encouraged to move in a lot more different ways. And then I think it's just, I think the best thing after that is just full range of motion strength training. So, um, full, like full range calf raises. So going as into your limit of, um, dorsiflexion and adding load if you need to, to get more, more range, um, like a slant board. I stand on this slant board, mm. um, a fair bit just to, just to put them in dorsiflexion, um, knees over toes type split squats and, like front squats and things like that, that uh, sort of encourage the knees to go forward. Mm. And um, th- I think the, like the clock face drill is a really good one. Like that star excursion, mm. because you're really testing out your ability to dorsiflex with different angles of the ankle um, while stabilizing. So mm. your whole, you'll really feel that your whole foot, ankle, calf complex will be, isometrically working really hard Mm. while you're moving through that range of motion. Mm. So I think it's, yeah, it's it's providing stability and then just full range strength training within your current range. And obviously with this, the same principles of, of intelligent programming, Mm. Um, but yeah, environmental and then just targeted strength training. And I think there is, there's probably something in that FRC concept where you can, um, you know, move through different subtalar joint ranges as well, inversion, eversion, and um, like things like that, that will promote more ankle dorsiflexion as well. So mm. if you free up those other ranges, mm. then it's more likely to want to go forward as mm. well. 
And I guess when you, I guess then balance and the, and the foot rolling and I guess, cause the foot rolling is still like moving those joints as well, mm. as well as like treating, like, uh, working on the more soft tissue side, but yeah, the balance beam stuff is, uh, w- would be good as well yeah. for that, I guess, because you're getting all of the bones in your feet would have to be moving around so much. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the foot, because it's a narrow surface that's like circular, I suppose, then your foot has to adapt a lot to that surface. It's very different to being on flat ground. And people are often surprised just how hard it is to stand on one mm. of those things. Um, and yeah, having that stability requirement while also... I really like the beam because it makes it more play-based. It's just like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to be able to do this movement. I'm just going to have a crack. And it's like, oh, I fell off. Oh, I fell off. It's like, no, I'm going to keep getting it until, and then you get it and you get this like, oh, sweet. I got that movement. Mm-hmm. Like your brain gives you a little reward, a little dopamine bump. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes like a really cool way of expressing the mobility that you do have. Mm-hmm. And then it's a, it's a good way to encourage you. Like, okay, I know my ankles restricted um, and that's why I can't do that task on the beam. So you're more likely to want to work on it outside of it as well. Mm. Yeah. Or, or whatever's relevant to you. You know, some people are like, Oh, I know my ankles are restricted. That's why I can't squat down with this back squat. So that's why they want to do more, but mm. the beam work combined with full range strength training, I think adding some load can be really helpful because it just, it facilitates like it's just more load. So you're going to get further into a range of motion. Mm. And um, yeah, I think that's helpful. Mm. When you talk about natural movement um, and you were talking to me a little bit when we met up the other day about the kind of things that you teach in, um, in your workshops and things like that. When you think about natural movement, what kind of things would it look like? Yeah. So I've, I've done, there's a course called MoveNet, mm. um, which was developed by a f- French guy, Owen Lacour. And Is he one of the dudes who started parkour or something? I'm pretty sure he was involved in like the original parkour scene yeah. because it's a, it's cool. Actually natural movement is pretty much is the basis for parkour. Mm. Um, it's and a really cool video. I think I can't remember what it's called, but if you look up like monkey versus parkour, on YouTube, mm. then it's this cool compilation of videos that show the similarities between the way a monkey is mm. moving to get around in an environment efficiently compared to like a parkour or maybe free running is a better term because I'm, I feel like parkour has become a lot more acrobatic based as well. Mm. So a lot more flips and things mm. like that. But when you think about, you know, vaulting, like running, jumping, climbing, vaulting, things like that, those are actually sort of ingrained movements that we would usually be doing in nature mm. just to literally get around efficiently mm. uh, or escape predators or, you know, whatever. And so I, I think of natural movement in the terms of what movements we would be needing to do to survive in a natural environment. So obviously there's the developmental patterns as you, um, you know, go, are born and go through infancy, then you learn how to roll, how to crawl, how to just balance yourself while sitting, how to squat, stand, walk, run. And then over time, then you uh, learn more complex movements like throwing, climbing, um, yeah, jumping, um, sprinting, you know, and you just develop your capacity. And the 
the cool thing is that all of that is done through play. So it's, it's no one's coaching a, a natural human or a tribal human how to do that per se. They're just seeing it done, mirroring that and, and sort of it's intrinsically motivating. They're wanting to be able to do that. They see their dad or someone in the tribe doing it. It's like, wow, like amazing. I, I want to be able to move like that. And they copy it and they, and they play with other kids and they practice all these movements through play and it's fun. And again, you, you, the brain's giving that reward, that dopamine bump of like, this is fun because it's practice for survival in a natural environment. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's just interesting now that we have to be, we almost have to be taught or coached how to move naturally again, because we're so disconnected from that, um, that natural movement. And because we, like I said, we don't have to move for our food or to escape predators or to, you know, anything like that. Mm. And in terms of play, um, we should dig into this because it's a huge, yeah, it's, um, you know, something that I've noticed. It's funny because, you know, I think we might've been talking about this as well. Like when we met up, the, the traditional kind of movement culture and the kind of calisthenics kind of scene and whatnot, it's very, from, the, from what I've experienced of it, is relatively um, like the Edo style stuff that, that gets filtered down into the people um, is not as much play-based. Like I know that what Edo actually does and experiments with is, is very play-based, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of it, to me feels like the acquisition of advanced calisthenics movements plus one or two other silos, maybe handstands or something like that. But again, handstands with me for me is it's a real grind because there's not much kind of play element in it. It's kind of more like three times 60 second chest to wall balance right. the wall kind of thing. Um, and you know, that, that play element seems like for at least it, me and my training as well, since talking to you really highlighted how much I'm missing that with the intrinsic motivation as well. Um, you know, talk a bit about play. Yeah. So play has been a a concept that I've been really loving lately, especially over the last year, um, since reading a few books. So my favorite books on it, are um, playing with movement by Todd Hargrove and exuberant animal by frank Francich is a really good one and then also there's just a more general book around the concept of play called play by stuart dr stuart brown um but i've been really delving into that because just understanding the context of play and how that is actually how we naturally learn movement is through play and it's play isn't i think a lot of people get the concept of play like oh it's fun and games and silly messing around kind of childish stuff but which it can be and that's fun um but it's also like todd talks about the different characteristics of play so it's explorative and creative and um, can involve elements of risk and it's sort of tinkering so it's it's more about um the sort of approach that you take to the movement where you're Oh, the other big thing is it's intrinsically motivating. So it's something that you want to do for the sake of that activity itself. Um, And you're fully present and focused in that activity and you're exploring your limits and figuring out, okay, I can do this, but I can't do that. Or why can't I do that? And then it's this creative problem solving approach to, um, 
to movement, which it, it contrasts that to like a work approach where it's structured, repetitive, you know, yeah, like three times 60 seconds against the wall. You're, you're working your muscles, you're trying to improve conditioning and it's for the external goal of eventually I want to be able to do, you know, maybe do a handstand or eventually I want to be able to do a one arm handstand, which, and yeah, so it's, there is some gray area here because eventually the one arm handstand would feel like play, Mm -hmm. but you have to work, you have to build your conditioning and build your strength and this and that until you can get to that goal of doing that. But Mm -hmm. I suppose a more, traditional example of work is like just going to the gym and lifting weights Mm. so that you look big and Mm. you, you know, reduce your body fat or whatever. It's, Mm. you know, a lot of people don't enjoy going to the gym. They Mm. just go and like run on the treadmill and, you know, do some machines and they're like, okay, I've got my workout in and that's that, you know, now I'm a good person because I got my workout in, but Mm. it's not fun. It's not something that like, I can't wait to go and move. Mm. Whereas, you know, there's, of course, there's value in a work approach to strength and conditioning because, well, I feel because it allows you to explore more movement options in play. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like, yeah, you need to have that meaning attached to like, if you're just doing mobility work because you think your hips should be mobile, but you're not expressing that mobility through, um, you know, rock climbing or hacky sack or, you know, or the sport or something that's relevant to you and relevant and meaningful to you, then you're much, first of all, you're much less likely to keep going with the mobility work. Uh And second of all, your, your brain probably isn't going to want to hang on to that range of motion as much as it would if you're actually expressing it Mm -hmm. dynamically in um, an enjoyable way. Uh Um, So I think, yeah, having that balance between work and play. And I found that with my rehab, like it was a point where I couldn't really play anything because my knees hurt too much. And I was, that was getting me really down. Like it's quite, I mean, anyone who's had chronic pain can attest to the fact it's quite frustrating and depressing. Um, but having a structured repetitive progressive work approach helped resolve the issues so that then I could play, but I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing it just so my legs could be strong or just so I could get mad quads. It was so that I could do the things that I wanted to be able to do like jujitsu or, you know, like a a pickup game of soccer in the park or Mm. or something like that. Mm. Yeah. So it's that intrinsic motivation, which relates to like the flow, like we were talking about. Yeah, let's get into that. So I'm rereading, I've read it ages ago and I've actually forgot how good the book was, but it's um, Flow by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Um, I've only just really figured out how to pronounce the name probably. Um, But he's an amazing author. He writes really well and um, he did all this research into, he calls it the psychology of optimal experience. So the happiest people in the world he's figured out are the people who spend the most time in a flow state, which is basically where you're fully focused in the present moment, your you know, sense of time and sense of self-consciousness diminishes and you, there's meaning to it. And um, yeah, you're doing it for the sake of the activity itself. So obvious examples are like, like surfing or, you know, for me, it's beam training, um, beam play, stuff like that. Um, where it's just fun, but then there's that element of like, you know, if you're doing meaningful work, uh, like for for instance, for you or for me recording a podcast, uh, it's still sort of 
I guess, work or contributes to business, but it's meaningful and you're making uh, a change. You're wanting to help make a change and help people through the education and the concepts that you talk about. So you can really channel a flow state through work as well. Um, if you're, if you've got enough meaning. So he, he sort of talks about it all comes down to the level the quality of attention that you have in the activity mm. and the, your intention behind why you're doing it. Is mm. it for this external goal that it makes it feel like a chore or is it like, yes, this is, I want to do this because that fulfills me as a person mm. and because the activity is fun and enjoyable. Mm. Mm. Yeah, man. It's powerful stuff. Yeah. No, this it's uh it's funny because over the holidays I feel like I kind of lost my way with training a bit because I wasn't actually training as much. And it's funny because did the holiday, the question is, did the holidays give me a chance to like have a, a honest, better perspective on my training and therefore make me want to maybe take it in different ways that are maybe more play-based or more experimental and things like that. Or, is it the fact that because I'm training less, I heard this quote, maybe, man, I don't know if I was talking about it with you. No, I was talking about it with another bloke who I think I'll re- uh, release an episode with tomorrow, Will Grant, who owns Ghetto Movement down in Wollongong. Okay. Um, and he was saying, do we, do we like what we eat because we eat it or do we eat what we like because we like it? You know what I mean? It's kind mm. of like, am I falling out of, like, am I... Uh, is it, is it hard to maintain my training because I'm actually not because I'm on holidays because I'm like, you know, not uh, training as much. And yeah. being like, I don't know if I like my training as much or is it the fact that I actually have a clear perspective and then able to analyze, <laughs> analyze and be like, I don't know if I actually do like it as much or I don't, or I want more intrinsic motivation to come out of it. Yeah, true. Well, yeah, I guess you can sort of just go on your gut feeling or, yeah. and again, it's all the trial and error thing. Like Mm. your body gives you signals and you go, you try and interpret it. And then really you just like, for me, I mean, I've sort of been in play mode, I guess for the last year with my training and, and literally just go down to the park, mess around, do, do some simple locomotives and do a lot of beam, beam training and sit on the ground a lot and just haven't really been, I guess like work, training, I suppose, Mm -hmm. but then more recently getting, uh, into more sort of structured range of strength, you know, flexibility work and, um, getting a a better routine with, um, strength training, like I'm doing the dense, some dense strength type stuff Mm. through real movement Mm. and finding a lot of flow through that as well. And a lot of, um, uh, I got a lot of feelings and experiences that I maybe hadn't realized I was missing when I was just more in play mode Mm. and I think it's been nice to bring that balance back and, and to sometimes you do just have to find that momentum, just stick to something for a week or two. And then you're like, Oh, actually, no, I really do enjoy this. Mm. And that's what I want to be doing. And definitely I think for anyone, you should have a balance of work and play Mm. because that's generally how you can get the most out of both. Mm. Yeah. It's a good point, man. What's your been, what's been your experience with uh, the real movement? stuff that you've been doing um it's it's been good i i think i i actually was around real movement when it was first rolling out in uh i guess yeah, it was my first year out of physio so two oh yeah four four or five years ago mm-hmm. five years ago and i went to a course and really resonated with the like the mission that keegan was talking about and then um 
it sort of went down that um, like the ketones kind of path and I, I've like bought into that and a low level and then realized that wasn't for me. And then mm-hmm. I sort of disconnected with the real movement community. And I think it all kind of that went really low carb kind of vibe. Is that what you um, the key? Oh, oh, sorry. No, they like, it was like a MLM kind of ketone supplement um, thing where Keegan, um, it sort of, it was, yeah, it was a while ago, but it, he was like the head of the ketone. Um, it was like prove it, prove it ketones. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, a lot of people in real movement bought into that, but then it sort of became more about the ketones than it did about the true real movement culture that I originally right. connected with, I think. Right. Um, but so I think it's, and then Keegan went down a different path, but now he's brought it back into this very cool plat. Also yeah, mentoring back then with him was really expensive, mm-hmm. uh, like 10 grand or something like that. But now he's got an online platform that you pay a monthly subscription, which is quite reasonable. Mm-hmm. And he's got all these different um, certifications and courses that you can do in that um, in that platform and also brings in other coaches like the knees over toes guy, Ben mm-hmm. Patrick and Lucas Aaron, who's the range of strength guy. So he's got all of these different things into one platform. And I, I think maybe the only thing now is like, Whoa, there's so much like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, but there is re- a lot of good content in there that I think if every trainer, you know, if every personal trainer and physio and, you know, health professional was across all of that, then, it would be a very different world when it comes mm. to pain and injury because yeah, I think, I think people just, people have misconceptions about flexibility. People have misconceptions about, you know, bad versus good movement, like knees over toes is bad. Mm. Avoid knees over toes. It's like these guys are, you know, they're not the, the originators of these thoughts, but they are popular popularizing them in a really, um, I think in an accessible way, mm. which I, which I think is great. And like I said, I, I do feel like I'm at a time in my life where I need a bit more of that work approach to allow me to achieve some of the goals that I want to, and Mm. to, you know, get stronger, you know, to explore handstands more and get um, more mobile so I can get better on the Hackmanton court, which is Mm. like our our hacky sack game. And um, yeah, it's like getting more work in, finding pleasure in the work and also then expressing that through the things that I like to play with. Yeah. So the real movement's helping me do that. What are your goals that you're Mm. talking about? So I'd like to, um, I'd like to get full splits. Mm -hmm. So side splits and front splits Mm -hmm. and how far away are you? Uh, I saw your side splits, but they're pretty decent. They're not the too. Moment. They're not too bad. Yeah. The um, the calves are sniffing the ground, as <laughs> as Lucas would say. Um, and again, like that that side split mobility has just been maintained through a lot of ground based locomotives, like I like those monkey drills and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like I, up until the last few weeks, I haven't really done a proper like crack at side splits. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, I'm not too far off the ground considering that mm. and the front splits are a little further away, but I think within the year I'll have them both. Um, and a lot of that, the flexibility will just really help. Like 
it's kind of hard to explain, but this game, Hackmanton, which you, you've seen, <laughs> yeah. um, it does help to be able to get your foot right up sure. <laughs> because you can get over the ball and, and kick it down. Yeah. Um, and you can do some more crazy saves. And it also just feels great to fling your leg up like that in a kick. And, mm. and yeah, anyway, so side splits are mostly for that. But also I like the idea of being a lot more flexible through the hips for getting different positions in hand balancing. So things like... Um, you know, straddle presses and, and stole the press and things like that are uh, goals that I'd like to achieve just mm-hmm. as a, I think they're a really cool ex- expression of total body strength and control and, and flexibility. Mm-hmm. And they're very hard to achieve, but they just, I mean, handstands in general just feel really good. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just a fiend for anything balance related, really mm-hmm. like beams and hand balancing and surfing and indoor board and everything like that just really gets me going. Mm-hmm. So um, they, but handstands take a lot of strength, uh, especially if you're getting into those more complex it's strength. Man. Yeah, so it's crazy. Hey, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, pretty much I'd say stole the press full splits. Um, and though I'm just trying to keep it to those sort of simple goals at the moment. It's very, very obvious. Yes, no. But I mean, I'm also at the same time exploring, wanting to explore running more um, and that the running and, and just, just sort of maintaining um, and just actually turning, turning into Hackmanton to an international sport and yeah. being, being the king of Hackmanton is another goal. Being the Dana White of Hackmanton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Or at least having the Aussie team be the best team in the world. Yeah. <laughs> once yeah. once there's multiple international teams. Yeah, cool, man. <laughs> um, my mate, my mate Tom down in Canberra said that it's kind of stuck in my mind and I've never questioned it that much or put it to the test, but it still affects me to this day. When we were playing Ultimate Frisbee together, that's how I met him. He said that, and he was training under Ido and stuff just after. He said that when he stopped running, his hip mobility gains went through the roof as compared to before. And so it's always kind of been like, for me, made me scared to get back into running because my hip mobility is quite limited and I want to kind of make progress with it. So it makes me scared to go back into running. Like, have you experienced running a bit and then like tightening up or or what's your experience of that? Um, look, to be honest, I, I probably haven't explored running really enough to know Mm. that sort of cause effect Mm. stuff with my hips. Mm. Um, I usually feel like my hips are quite opened after running. Mm. It might be a technique thing, um, or a volume thing Mm. because I haven't really been doing a lot of volume. It's Mm. I've really taken so far. It's been a very play-based approach where I'll chuck some tunes on and, and just you know, run pretty fast when the drop hits and then back it off to like a, jo- like a slow jog or a walk when, yeah. when the drop sort of settles down, yeah. um, which I find really fun, but I haven't, it hasn't been much volume and I haven't really made a connection between those two things. Mm-hmm. There might be something in the fact that maybe too much range of motion isn't going to be beneficial to running, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like as long as you've built the strength as well, with the range of motion, then it shouldn't really be an issue. Yeah, true. So, so that's something to think about. I'll definitely take notes over my running journey this year and, and uh, let you know what I find. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so, like, I want to ask you about what kind of music you're into because 
for the for a bit of context, when I rocked up to James's house this morning, he was having a shower, <laughs> and I could uh, I could I could hear through like the shower window, and I was trying to be like, "Yo, dude, I'm outside. You can hear me." <laughs> and you're listening to um, what's that? What's that song? Was called? it Energy? Yeah, it Space is. Cadet. <laughs> listening to this absolute banger in the shower, and I was like, "That's funny as." Yeah, yeah. I'm, I've got multiple music tastes. Mm. Um, I like a good banger, especially mm. just to like to pump up for training or for running or. Um, or whatever and I do love the sort of chill alternative um, or even just like sort of Xavier Rudd type Mm. chill as well Mm. Um, it just depends on my mood and um, I find music's a really cool way to yeah change your mood or change your level of arousal to Mm. suit whatever activity you want Um, but yeah I'm certainly not opposed to a a hardcore banger here and there yeah even in the shower (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) of course yeah uh, well, actually, that's one of my tricks um, for because I do cold showers, and mm. so going through winter, then I usually, I have this song called it's called Fire by Jack Garrett, mm. and so there's a a certain point in the song where it like drops really hard, mm. and it's like give me your fire, mm. and so I like I sort of g up for thirty seconds until that drop, and and I've conditioned my brain to go straight into the cold shower as soon as the drop hits mm. so it's not very hard in summer obviously but when it gets to winter it helps to have that routine that ritual to go all right the song's on in 30 seconds i'm getting into the shower mm. like regardless of whether i like it or not because otherwise i'm like oh am i gonna do it like yeah. oh, kind of and then but otherwise yeah it's just yeah it's just a ritual and i find it helps a lot and so I kind of got into the, the habit of listening to pump up beats in the, in the shower, <laughs> even, even in summer. Even summer and yeah. like, you turn on the cold and it's like most people's it's, heart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did that, the time, the timing kind of thing has been interesting to me recently because um, I know in dense strength, as I understand it, you kind of go, it's not so much that you have like three sets of 10 to complete at your own pace. It's like you chuck a timer on and you're going to do two reps every minute for 10 minutes or something like that. And I've been playing with that. And in that way where it's like, once you chuck the timer on, you're kind of like, oh shit, I better. And it it kicks you into gear. And it's so much easier in terms of accountability because I tend to go way too hard in my training. Mm. Like I tend to push it so hard every set that I dread the next one yeah. and then procrastinate. And then tr- it takes me three hours to get through a training session. Then I'm absolutely destroyed. Yeah. And it's so, it's so much more manageable to go on that, that time progress method or like the dense strength kind of method. I feel like, you know? yeah, I've found that as well. Like if I just, if I'm like, all right, I'm doing three sets of 10 of ring rows, then mm. yeah, it'll take me, 10 15 minutes to do three sets of 10 and then uh whereas if i chuck a timer on for five minutes then i'll do five sets of six or something like that Mm. and it's like similar it's the same almost basically the same amount of Mm. reps but i'm doing it in five minutes and it feels each set feels more manageable but then by the end of it it's like oh i've really worked there Mm. and yeah i'm a big fan of the time i do that for my locomotives and stuff as well Mm. is just chuck a timer on a minute and a half of ground movement, locomotives, some kind of variation, and then a rest for a minute while I hacky sack and then mm. go back to the locomotives. And then the timer just does it all for you. It yeah, takes the right. takes the thought out of it yeah. and you can almost get into the flow of the movement even mm. more. You're not making decisions about sure. when I should change or when I should start. And yeah, you're not procrastinating because it's mm. like, oh, as soon as that minute's up, I'm doing another five. For sure. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty key. Mm. Or it can be if you... if maybe different styles will suit different things, but yeah, I've found it so convenient. You also get, 
like the, the breaking it up into smaller, better quality chunks, especially for strength work has been quite effective for me as well. I haven't played with it long enough to actually notice results as in like, you know, really big gains from it, but just being able to do like, if I'm doing dragon squat work, for example, that's quite challenging for me. And because my mobility is kind of restricted, it's like restricted, you know, on, on the continuum of yeah. restricted mobility. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just crazy though. Cause you're in this echo tunnel of like, of comparison and you're yeah. like, holy fuck, that's a crazy dragon squat, you know, and like yeah. my coach Jackson could do dragon squats. Like, yeah. Jackson's straight insane. Up. Yeah. And it's like, and then you see like people like Joachim Hildeson, you know, the, 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 where's he from? Belgium mobility guy. Oh, yeah. 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 I had him on my podcast and his, mobility is cooked and it's just crazy because it's a big spectrum the mobility spectrum but i find it easier to do maybe like two reps each leg each minute and and you get much more better quality working because if i do five in a row the last three are like crap and i don't even want to do the last one i'm just kind of like "Eh, get it out of the way kind of thing yeah i i do like that it's almost that's almost like a play-based approach within a work approach as well, where it's, it's more focused on the learning of the skill with less reps, but more focus um, than it is about getting a workout with the dragon squat, Mm -hmm. which I think does carry over to any strength move as well. Like strength is a skill as Mm -hmm. well and whether it requires a lot of mobility or not, but if you've got full attention in what you're doing, and you do, yeah, slightly less reps, but you still accumulate a good amount over time mm. and you're more fresh for each set, then you're going to, your nervous system is going to ingrain that movement pattern better. For sure. And, and it does mm-hmm. make, I feel like it makes it a bit more fun rather than just mm. like beating, you know, like beating yourself up in these massive sets. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. I was going to also ask as well, like you put out a lot of content on Instagram and so you interact with the app a lot, I'm guessing. Mm. And do you find yourself getting sucked into scrolling on it and maybe kind of like information bingey kind of looking at it and therefore does it affect you in ways or do you find it really easy to just kind of disconnect and maybe not as much have as much of that com- comparison because it's automatic comparison. Like mm. if Jackson rocks up on your thing and he's just doing a one-arm handstand and you want to be able to do handstands, you're like, is it just me or is everyone around here doing crazy hands? Like how do you, do you struggle with that or do you not? How do you deal with that? Um, Yeah, it's a good topic. I, I definitely have struggled with that in the past. Like Mm. I've never been much of a social media dude. Mm. Like even like my, it's just hard for me to maintain a social media account. Like unless I had it for for business, Mm. I probably wouldn't be posting much. Mm. I I just really like the real world. Um, except because I do have it, then I, it is easy to get sucked into scrolling mm. and to going down different threads and yeah, seeing all of these people killing it and you're like, Oh, I should be doing better. And it can, it definitely can get sucked into that. And I, I think in the past, more so in the past, this year has been different because I've changed up my routines and, and really set more intentions on it. And I've read digital minimalism this year as well, which is a really good book um, by Cal Newport. That's really helped sort of ingrain that philosophy in me. But um, I'd find especially it's funny, the, the less I sleep and the worse I eat and like the less I'm doing training, 
the more I'm likely to scroll, you know, if your energy's off and you're not yeah. feeling good about yourself, you're just going to end up on Instagram yeah, and scrolling. Yeah. And then that's the kind of mindset where you look at someone and you're like, you get even more down it's on yourself. It's a cycle, hey. Yeah. yeah. And if you can break out of that and sleep better, you know, obviously less time on your phone before bed is huge mm. and then sleep better, wake up better, therefore train better. Therefore you want to eat better. Suddenly you don't feel like scrolling anymore and mm. you open it and you're like, eh, I don't need it. Mm. Um, so that's a, that's a big thing. And then, um, also I've just, yeah, like I said, I've changed up my routines lately where I actually have a structured time of the day where I do all my grant, like my gramming, mm. like I respond to comments and DMS and, sort of make the plan for what I'm posting that day or for, you know, the following few days and make sure I know what I need to produce that day. And so I actually spend a chunk of time doing that first, like pretty much not first thing, but um, after I've done all my other training and, and routines and then, um, then it's sort of, it's structured. So I'm not, I'm not going all the time checking throughout the day. Oh, I got to reply to this person. This, Oh, I haven't replied to that. It's like most of it's done. And then I can just spend smaller chunk, like smaller structured chunks throughout the day. Mm. I'm still getting better at that. That's still like a, that's a newer thing for me, but Mm. um, that's helping a lot because I did find I'd end up consuming a lot of media and Mm. not creating enough media to really feel like I'm, you know, doing the best I could. Mm. Mm. Did you get that kind of chunking technique from Cal or is that just more of your own Um, I just, uh, I'm not sure. I think it's a Tim Ferriss-y thing, that batching concept, which I heard originally. Mm. Um, And I guess I've been much more inspired about it since reading Digital Minimalism. Mm. I started reading that at the start of the year. So it sort of really helped shape what I'm doing. Mm. um, But I guess one thing I struggle with now is like, I kind of want to get, you know, more of, I want, I kind of want to use my personal Instagram as like a documentation, I suppose, of my movement process, but running two accounts is harder than like, I don't know. It's it's not something I'm used to yet. And um, I, I find I get a bit more caught up in, overthinking for my personal account. Whereas yeah. I know what I want to do on my business account. Yeah. So it's boom, 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 boom. Yeah. So whereas the personal account's like, Oh, should I post out or not? And then it's, yeah, it becomes mm. a, a bigger thing. And so I end up just not posting as much, but I, I, um, I'm not sure what the answer is there, but I'm, I'm just gonna, I'll keep documenting my training on like just on videos on my phone and then I'll just post whatever I want to, I suppose, mm. but I'll figure that out. <laughs> do you have a mindfulness meditative any of the above kind of practice? Yeah, I do. I do. So uh, these days I'm doing a, uh, the breathing app, which is just a, it's a free app on, on, um, I guess, yeah, it'd be Apple and Android, but, um, it's a very simple breath timer, which is six seconds in six seconds out, or you can change that ratio actually, but I do six seconds in six seconds out, mm-hmm. um, which is basically just control breathing. You can set a timer for, how long you want to go for. So Mm -hmm. lately I've been doing just five minutes a day because I wanted to make sure it was manageable and I could fit it in. Mm. But I think I'll up it to 10 minutes because it does feel really good. It's basically meditative breathing Mm -hmm. because I guess the whole, I did do mindfulness meditation with a a couple of apps like Headspace and Waking Up by Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. I found really helpful to, Mm -hmm. to understand the concepts of meditation. But once you understand the concepts and you've had a bit of practice, then if you just focus on your breathing, 
then it's a great meditation in itself. And it's also very good for like breath control is very huge for everything in life. And so learning to control the tempo of your breath, um, it's well researched as well that that's a very good thing to do and for physical and mental health. And I find the breathing app super simple. I don't have to listen to anyone talk. I just chuck it on five minutes. Again, it's that time thing. You know that in five minutes it's going to stop and then you just get deep into it and yeah, it feels great afterwards. So that, and I also sort of see the beam as like an active meditation because mm-hmm. you get very quick feedback if you lose your focus because you mm-hmm. fall off. Mm-hmm. So if I do, especially eyes closed work on the beam mm-hmm. is insanely challenging. So you have to be fully present mm-hmm. and you feel every little change in alignment in your body and I find that really a really cool meditation actually. Um, so yeah, those two. What do say. you get out of the, um, the breathwork kind of practice or maybe what would you notice if you, what do you think you would notice if you didn't do it for a couple of days or a week? Um, I think it comes back to, it's just that attentional training really. Um, so training your attention on timing your breath I think, I mean, if, if any, I guess an even better way would be without the timer, but it's training wheels basically. So without the actual app going, it'd be even more attentional challenge to time your breath. But, um, like, like, um, Mihaly talks about in flow, then the quality of your attention will determine like the quality of your experience and how much attention you're paying to anything you do, whether it's eating or moving or, um, you know, admin or whatever it is, if you're paying enough attention, then you can find flow and find flow in very mundane or just ordinary things. And so I think having that period of practice in the more, like I do it in every morning, um, having that to start the day, then sets the scene or sets the tone for the rest of the day for me to be more, to pay more attention to everything and to check in with my breathing regularly so that I know like checking in with your breathing is a really cool way to see what your inner state is like. Mm. So if you're shallow breathing or mouth breathing or, you know, yeah, upper chest breathing, then it's a more stressful state of mind and stressful state for the body. Whereas if you're, um, you know, slow, silent, nasal breathing through the diaphragm then that's a more sort of relaxed and and sort of inflow state for the body yeah um and i do want to touch on hacking the system before we kind of move into a final couple questions Mm -hmm. talk about hacking the system and what you guys are doing with that yeah so hacking the system it's it started off just because we were playing hacky sack and we were doing some crazy moves with the hacky sack and we're like wow it's like we're hacking the system mm. and they're like oh hacking hacking the system oh, that's, that's a cool like name for an instagram page or something we're like oh we should do this like hacky videos and put it up as hacking the system and then um and then i was like oh wait hacking the system like mm the system to hacky sack because I mean, hacky sack was such a big thing for a while back in, back in the whatever seventies or eighties and everyone was doing it. Um, but most people have sort of lost touch with it. And unless you've got a soccer background, it's a little hard to pick up. Uh, and so, and also we're doing it barefoot obviously because <laughs> TFC, uh, you know, and it's just more fun to do it barefoot. I think it's more challenging, but more fun. Uh, and, um, and I also realized that, 
the dexterity required to do the hacky sack barefoot is actually a really cool way to train the toe splay of the foot mm. and to, um, yeah, just increase the intelligence of the feet in general. So I was like, this really lines up with what I'm doing with TFC. I really love hacky sack. I, I've been addicted to it for the last like year or so. And we were like, yeah, let's make a system for it. And so we, we've just, yeah, we had a few days of really great ideas of going, okay, well, what do you need to do? Pick, you need to pick it up with your foot. You need to flick it up. You need to kick it. And then you can do tricks. So mm. like pick, flick, kick, trick, mm. P F K T. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> perfect system. Yeah. So that's the, that's the idea behind the perfect system. And then we also realized, Oh, it's actually quite demanding. Like if you want to be getting a lot, like good saves and you know, it's a whole heap of dynamic hip rotation and, stability and if you take some stills like there's a post that we did where we took some still shots of videos of us hacky sacking where our body's in some crazy positions mm. and so the better mobility and um, strength and and control that you have the better you're going to perform in hacky sack and obviously the less chance of any kind of injury really mm. and so we we're like okay well we need a body preparation system so we're calling that body hacking mm. hacking is a bit of a buzzword but mm-hmm. we, we like our puns so mm-hmm. <laughs> relating it to hacky sack so body hacking and then it sort of just kept evolving and and we were like oh this would be a really good injury prevention you know if we combine that um, strength mobility control with some beam work and some hacky sack to make it fun it's like a cool play-based injury prevention performance enhancement program really Mm. and so we we've um teamed up with um, so this is me and mac mac is my like best mate housemate who's turned into business partner with cfc this Mm -hmm. year and his brother and his mates are really high level soccer players and so they play in the npl and they and one of them's a soccer coach so we're actually starting to roll out um six week programs for um young soccer athletes um to yeah help prevent injuries and because th- these boys the soccer players that we've teamed up with have all had major injuries so acl spray, uh, acl tears and some bad ankle injuries and so they're really passionate about preventing injuries and i've had my soccer injuries obviously and um basically we want to get have a six-week program prove that the kids improve improve their abilities with you know different outcome measures and then also get data on the soccer club eventually once it rolls out bigger get more data on the soccer club of like total injury rates and just show that you can prevent a lot of there's so many injuries that are preventable Uh through just some really basic neuromuscular training and and mobility and flexibility work Uh and having the hacky sack to sort of integrate it all and to make it more fun. And obviously it's very relevant to soccer um, and having the sport of Hackmanton to um, tie it all together, I think is a, is a, we just want to create a culture around it really mm. um, around the hacky sack. That's not just a bunch of dudes in the park kicking a ball, which mm. is still very fun, mm. but it's, there's more, we want it to go deeper and, and to really create a culture around it's basically a culture around play-based injury prevention. Mm. And obviously you can't prevent all injuries like injury prevention in, you know, qu- quotes, but um, it's, you know, minimization, but then also teaching people how to recover properly from an injury if it does happen. Cause mm. inevitably there will be injuries that happen. Mm. Um, but a lot of them can be prevented, especially your classic non-con- no, non-contact ankle sprains mm. and, and ACL tears. That's just down to, 
poor mechanics and and um, poor stability mm. for, in the, for the large part for, for the sure. most part. Um, and in terms of the physio profession, like you know, when you were working more in the physio profession, what do you think that the physios are missing that could maybe be learnt from the more kind of like um, movement culture side of things? And what do you think the movement culture side of things and people can learn more from that physio kind of perspective? Ooh. Um, I think so what the physios can learn from movement culture, because we get taught in physio how to diagnose and manage injuries basically. Yeah. Um, and we get, we still get taught manual therapy. We still get taught electro like um, electrotherapy and ultrasound therapy and stuff like that. So a lot of it is, okay, someone's injured. The, let's manage it and, you know, fix it and resolve it. Um, whereas they don't really talk much about the lifestyle factors and the environmental factors that contribute to the body being injured or, the, or like a, a chronic recurring pain and injury. And so, and they don't really talk much about a movement practice, but I think we got like one semester on strength and conditioning or like exercise and it was just all gym based stuff. So it, there's, there's not much talk about it, like movement practice and the, a lot of the physios, it seems to be changing now, which is awesome. A lot of physios are kind of waking up to the fact that they have to move as well. <laughs> um, but it's a lot of the, I guess, more traditional physios and, and some of the people that I've been exposed to, uh, you know, maybe they exercise and they have their type of exercise, but that's it. And they don't really understand the concepts of like of movement nutrition of, of getting a, a, a good variety of movement and um and natural movement and things like that so i think they that's what they could learn a lot from the movement culture is that it's not about fixing people it's not about covering up it shouldn't be about covering up symptoms or you know bringing people back week after week because they're still in pain and you know you're managing their condition it should be about empowering the person to take control of their own movement and to find activities that they enjoy. And I think the, I think the a really cool thing about Instagram is that it does. I mean, all the people I follow promote that kind of thing as well for, for the most part. And it is a great way to share that, share the philosophy. And that's all the evidence-based stuff is, you know, finding meaning, empowering the client and helping them find meaning in the movement that they want to do. And not just saying, all right, do three reps, three sets and 10 reps of this exercise because it's good for you. It's like figuring out what, what motivates the client. It becomes a lot more psychosocial as well. So, and then what can the movement culture learn from physio? I think in terms of, I think there is value in some, in an isolationist approach in, in some certain, in some contexts. So good physio, um, you know, restores condition and, and, um, you know, strength and stuff and mobility to a certain area. And I think sometimes taking that approach is necessary to restore holistic movement to the whole as well. And, yeah, for some reason, I'm struggling to think of other things that physio can teach movement culture or what they could get from it. Um, but I mean, everyone just, I think the, a good thing that I like that Nick says is like, we're all on team human. And there's a lot of people that sort of, you know, we take shots at each other and we go, you know, oh, oh, Cairo, oh, they're just cracking backs and podiatrists, they're just selling orthotics. And for the most part, I really believe that everyone is 
wanting to help people as, as best they can. And certainly some university courses are outdated or, or the way, or the, you know, the, the people who run the courses or run a lot of the research have vested interest in things staying a certain way and, and so on. But for the most part, the, the practitioners in the field are wanting to help people as much as they can. And I think if we all just get on that same team where it's like, how can we help people the most? It starts with like any, any professional or movement coach or whatever, it starts with yourself and looking at how you can improve your own movement capacity and your own and get through your own injuries, which then helps you, um, helps you be more empathetic and, and a better practitioner. Mm. Good answer. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I feel like I maybe rambled a bit, but that's, that's the, that's the gist. That's the point of podcast. Yes, exactly. You get to ramble. <laughs> um, what about, you know, you talked about a couple of books before, what are some good books or resources, maybe Instagram accounts or blogs or things that you've come across in the whole category of resources mm. that people can check out that are maybe related to foot stuff, but also like broader your perspectives on like movement and like, people making changes to their, to themselves. Yep. So I'll give some authors cause these authors, I like pretty much all of their stuff. So Todd Hargrove has a couple of books, a guide to better movement and then playing with movement. Mm-hmm. And he is just really has a talent for um, the way he writes is very accessible to the everyday person. Very good for practitioners. Also very good for just your general public who, who maybe haven't done a university course uh-huh. um, or just don't know anything about movement or training. So he, he does a really good job of breaking down all the concepts of pain science and movement health and structure versus function and all of these things. And he's got a blog as well, which, uh-huh. um, which is great worth checking out. I think it's just called better movement. Uh-huh. And Katie Bowman is, is someone who's really shifted my perspective or deepened my perspective on movement. So her book called move your DNA was yeah really paradigm shifting for me because she approaches movement on that more cellular dna level and that helped that really helped the natural movement stuff hit home to me Mm because she talks about how well through mechanotransduction movement is actually like a nutrient Mm -hmm. because you know if you if you went on bed rest your muscles would get smaller and your bones would get weaker your bone density would decrease regardless of how much protein or calcium you're you're eating Mm, right mm. so the movement the load acts as a nutrient for the body to respond to and so Mm. that that physical inputs get converted into biochemical uh, outputs basically Mm. so her book move your dna and she also has a book called whole body barefoot Mm -hmm. Um, and then she's got other books that are as good but i would really rate those two and um I'm really liking the stuff on flow lately. I guess these are all things that I've talked about. Um, but, uh, Stephen Kotler's books on, um, stealing, it's called stealing fire. And then there's another one, um, rise of Superman. So they're on, on the similar, similar wavelength as well. Mm-hmm. And Frank Francich exuberant animal and, and new old way is another one. That's really good. A lot, a lot more of a, like a holistic, mm-hmm. uh, look at, you know, how our ancestors interacted with the environment and how we interact with it and how that affects us and, and so on. Mm. I've got my bookshelf here actually trying to think if there's, Oh yeah. And 
And the Cal Newport stuff, deep work and digital minimalism. Mm. I guess I've mentioned a lot of those already throughout the podcast, but mm. those are those would be all my go-tos mm. um, for like for where to start. Yeah. Did I also I told you about um, Play Anything by Ian Bogos? Yeah, as I well. looked that up. Yeah. Yeah, and there's also one that I remember during the interview, which you might uh, like, which I heard from Edo, which is Homo Ludens. Homo Ludens. Yeah, okay. and I think I think Luden is like some. Uh, it's like some like latin root of play kind of thing and i think i think i could be completely wrong but i think the general thesis is that like homo sapiens is to like think and reason or i don't quite know what sapiens means but it's one um it's like the the ones who do this sapiens and, means wise yeah yeah wise man yeah. yeah and so the thing is that maybe it's not like the wisdom maybe it's the play that actually facilitated the experimentation the tinkering yeah. the, the the evolution Whoa. that kind of stuff so Cool. Yeah. Um, so I'll yeah, write that you, down. Yeah, check that one out. Um, what, uh, like, last question. What advice would you give to yourself five years ago? Ah, five years ago, that was when I was starting my physio career. Um, I would just put me on that path of movement a little early. Like, I was already on the path, but I'd, I'd say really explore it and maybe... I think getting a little more structure to the training as well as exploring a lot more through play. Um, and I would say learning a bit more about social media because I, I've sort of dragged my heels with the social media mm. stuff and, and I'd give my, give the advice of changing my perspective on it and really tr- trying to utilize it for good, which it can be utilized mm. for good. Um, but maybe giving myself a, a warning that, you know, I'll be using it. <laughs> I'll yeah. be using it a fair bit, yeah. and it's good to get used to it and to find uh, a way to use it that will be beneficial for me without those negative effects. But I do feel like you know, you go through everything for a reason. You you, you learn stuff as you go, and um, you know, you can you can only I guess it's a hard, it's a good hypothetical question. Um, but I guess if you look back, you can't really you don't want to change anything because it's mm. made you who you are today in exactly. a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of what kind of stuff you're doing, how people can check you out, where they can find you, what are your offerings? Give yourself an extravagant plug as much as you like. <laughs> All right. So yeah, my, my main Instagram is at tfc.australia. Um, I also have a personal Instagram, which is just James Duna, um, which like I said, I'm not as active on, but um, you can see a bit more of my own movement journey on that. And uh, we've got our website, which is... Um, www.tfc-shopaus.com and maybe we'll put in the show notes it's a bit of a weird one um so that's got all our products and beams and um hacky sacks and toe spreaders and foot health and balance stuff basically and we also have workshops coming up uh, around australia we've got one in brisbane coming up at the end of february and then we'll be getting some in melbourne and sydney and and the other major cities uh as sort of covid permitting um touch wood and we'll also we're also working on an online workshop as well this year probably over the next two or so months to to get out so that people who maybe can't make it to an in-person workshop can still get uh, a similar yeah that's similar experience um i mean in person is awesome because you actually get that that physical interaction but the online stuff will be the online workshop can still be really helpful Mm -hmm. um so, oh, and, and the other Instagram is 
at hacking this hacking the system, mm-hmm. um, which will be more active on yeah, from now on, now that it's building into, into a proper thing, cool. which is exciting. Yeah. And we'll chuck, um, all of the links to all of James's stuff and for collective Australia in the, in the description of the podcast as well. But yeah, man, appreciated your time today yeah. and appreciate very, having me on very fat chat. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, man. I'll put you on mine. Yeah, bro. I'll get you on mine. Yeah, let's do that.